Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 50, the big 5-0. I'm your host, Paul Rakoff. And if you're not angry, you're not paying attention, especially right now. What you see now in an uncontained way, and although we are containing it in some respects, we keep getting people coming in from the country that are travel-related. We've seen that in many of the states that are now involved. And then when you get community spread, it makes the challenge much greater. So I can say we will see more cases and things will get worse than they are right now. How much worse we'll get will depend on our ability to do two things, to contain the influx of in people who are infected coming from the outside and the ability to contain and mitigate within our own country. Bottom line, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. That's Dr. Anthony Fucci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases Briefing Congress, and now probably the most famous doctor in America. He's leading the fight for America against the coronavirus, but he's not the reason to be angry. He's doing his job. He's updating the public. He's keeping it real. But that's not the case with every other leader in Washington right now. Have a test. They're all set. They have them out there. In addition to that, they're making millions of more as we speak. But as of right now and yesterday, anybody that needs a test, that's the important thing. And the tests are all perfect. Like the letter was perfect. The transcription was perfect, right? This was not as perfect as that, but pretty good. No, it's not pretty good. And no, anyone who wants a test cannot get a test. That's a lie. And no, it's not perfect. It's as far from perfect as possible. The entire response from the federal government, led by the president, has not been pretty good. It's been pretty bad. Dangerously bad. Things are not okay. All of Italy is completely shut down. Flights between the U.S. and Europe have just been stopped. The NBA season is on hold, and Tom Hanks has coronavirus. Things are not okay. There's no reason to panic, but there is reason to be concerned, and there is reason to be vigilant, and there is definitely good reason to be angry. It's going to disappear. One day, it's like a miracle. It will disappear. Yes. And from our shores, we've, you know, it could get worse before it gets better. It could maybe go away. We'll see what happens. Nobody really knows. It won't disappear. There won't be any miracles, and his response, his response, is good reason to be angry. Many of his responses are good reason to be angry, because just a few days ago, he said this. So I think we're in great shape. I mean, I think we're in great shape. This came unexpectedly a number of months ago. I heard about it in China, came out of China, I heard about it, and we made a good move. We closed it down, we stopped it, otherwise... uh, The head of CDC said last night that you would have had thousands of more problems if uh, we didn't shut it down very early. It was a very early shutdown, which is something we got right. He didn't get it right. We're not in great shape. We didn't stop it. We didn't get it right. We got much of it wrong. He got much of it wrong. And that's understandable reason to be concerned, be vigilant, and yes, to be angry. Because leadership matters. And maybe now, more than any other time in his presidency, all the things that challenge him, all the things that rattle him, all the things that reveal him, 
all the things that make him President Mayhem, all those things are more dangerous than ever. And more than ever, the world can see it, the country can see it, and you can see it. I'm your GPS. Turn right up ahead. You never update me, so now I just have to wing it. All right, man, turn left up ahead. Recalculating. Turn right now! <laughs> and your cut rate insurance may not pay for all this, so get Allstate. You can save money and be better protected from mayhem. Like me. Recalculating. Yeah, recalculating. Our president mayhem is like a broken, outdated, obsolete GPS. Like one of those big, clunky Garmin things you bought your dad for Christmas 10 years ago before we all got iPhones and Google Maps and Waves. Trump guiding us through this storm is like someone's crazy, abusive stepdad guiding us through a cross-country trip in the middle of a hailstorm or maybe a zombie apocalypse. The satellite doesn't even link to that old-ass GPS anymore. The screen doesn't even turn on. But your crazy-ass, abusive stepdad that is our president, he's turning and twisting all over the place, assuring us that that old GPS works. He knows where we're going, and there's plenty of gas in the tank. Problem is, if we don't stop him and get back on track, using the very best technology that the world has to offer, we, as a nation, will be stranded in the middle of the desert with no gas station in sight, no air conditioning, no food for the dog, no water for the baby's bottle, and no insulin for diabetic grandma. With this guy behind the wheel in a storm, it's more than annoying. It's more than anger-inducing. It's dangerous. Because in a situation like this, one that the World Health Organization has now classified as a global pandemic, with President Mayhem behind the wheel of America, he cannot just bang up the car or make us late for the hotel check-in. He can send us careening off a cliff. Leadership matters, especially in times of crisis. And that's what we're going to explore later in this episode with one of the finest leaders of our time and one of the best experts in America on leadership and especially leadership in chaos. The storm is here. The NBA just suspended its season after a player tested positive for the coronavirus. Italy has ordered all businesses to close, tightening its lockdown even further. Washington, Kentucky, New York, and other states have moved towards stronger measures. And even Tom Hanks and his wife have the coronavirus. It's rough, and it will probably get worse. But we're in it together. And just like all the other storms that have hit our country, from Hurricane Sandy to 9-11 to Pearl Harbor, we can rise above it. We can get past it, but before we can, we've got to get through it. So for now, we're all Riders on the Storm. Riders on the Storm. Riders on the Storm. Into this house we're born. Into this world we're thrown. Whether you're a teacher in an elementary school, a manager in a restaurant, the parent in a family, or just a solo citizen who lives by yourself, you're a leader. You have a responsibility and an opportunity to lead. 
whether that means shutting down your office until the virus is contained or just being diligent enough to keep washing your hands so you don't infect someone who's more vulnerable than you. Everyone in America can be a leader. And in this episode, we're going to go deep into how to be a more effective leader in the face of coronavirus. This episode will bring you information you can use to keep yourself, your loved ones, your neighbors, and your country safe. Every Angry Americans podcast brings you the four eyes: integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. And this one will bring you all four for sure. And of course, our standard additional eye of independence. But this episode is a massive adrenaline shot of information to help you through these tough times and through any hard time you might face. Maybe you're listening to this pod months after the threat of the coronavirus has subsided. Maybe you're going through a divorce. Maybe you just lost your job. Maybe you got the coronavirus. Maybe you just want to be a better father, mother, son, or daughter. This episode will equip you like a vaccine to guard you against panic, chaos, and stupidity. In times like these, storms are inevitable. But how you choose to prepare for them, how you choose to react when you're in them, that can be the difference between your success and failure. And collectively, the success and failure of our future as a nation. So later in this episode, I'm going to introduce you to your upgrade for that Garmin GPS and an upgrade for your iPhone, your Google Maps, and your Waves. I'll introduce you to a guy who can guide you through whatever happens. Even when the battery on your phone dies, the power goes out in your neighborhood, the satellites overhead fail. Our guest in this episode will give you a playbook, valuable insight, and some inspiration into how to handle any challenge and how to handle fear. Chris Fussell is a true American badass of the highest level. He's not just incomparably tough and tested. He's brilliant and generous. He's a former officer in development group, maybe the most elite unit in the U.S. military. The Naval Special Warfare Development Group, commonly known as Deb Group or SEAL Team 6, is the United States Navy component of the Joint Special Operations Command, and they are the best. And Chris Fussell was one of them. And now, part of his mission in life is to take all those experiences to help empower others, to help make people, organizations, and companies better, to make America better. You've invested a ton of your tax dollars in training a leader like Chris. Now, he's paying it forward by investing small pieces of his knowledge and experience in others. The specifics of Chris's experience, his unit, etc., are not for public consumption, and there's much he can't talk about. But he can share in general terms and in specific lessons keys to making it through tough times. Not only how to survive, but how to thrive. A small group of leaders like Chris have been as innovative in warfare, leadership, and organizational design as someone like Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg has been in technology, and in the end, with much higher stakes. These folks are the most elite in America. When we think about elite performers, we often think about sports. There are 32 teams in the NFL, with roughly 58 players on each team, for a total of 1,996 players in the NFL. According to a Government Accountability Office report published in 2015, there are even fewer military personnel in Naval Special Warfare Development Group. Even fewer are officers. Even fewer command units. And despite 
the flood of recent movies and books about Navy SEALs, they are known and pride themselves for being silent professionals. They're America's quiet storm, our quietest storm. And when they come home, after serving in ways we can never truly comprehend, they can be a group of leaders who can guide us through the storms to come, whatever those storms may be. Just like every generation of American warrior has since General George Washington and his founding of our nation. Elite special operations leaders are not a cure to our nation's problems. They're not an antidote. But like our teachers, our activists, our artists, our first responders, our entrepreneurs, and like you, whoever you are, as a concerned citizen, they can be a critical antibody that fights back against whatever virus seeks to infect our body politic and this nation we all hold so dear. So stay tuned for one of the most important conversations we've ever had on this show. And I'll have some important actions you can take to help respond to the coronavirus and more. And I've got listener voicemails to play. More later. But before that, as always, there are some key issues that have me angry, have others angry, and should have everyone angry. And that starts with the biggest storm of them all. I can't stand the rain against my window. Coronavirus is here, and it's the biggest storm to hit the shores of America in a very long time. Based upon the current trajectory, how many people do you think will get this new virus, and how many people do you think will die? You cannot predict. And that's I know you can't predict, but there must be, you know, you, 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 we have a graph. We have the beginning of a graph. We know this is going to go up. We have the experience of China. We have the experience of Italy. Yeah. Um, can, you, can you give us some projections? It is going to be totally dependent upon how we respond to it. So I can't give you a number. If, if, if we now sit back complacently... I'm not asking to be complacent. I'm asking for a realistic... I mean, that's what the public is looking I for. I can't give you a realistic number until we put into the factor of how we respond. If we are complacent and don't do really aggressive containment and mitigation, the number could go way up and be involved in many, many millions. If we taught to contain, we could flatten it. So there's no number answer to your question until we act okay. upon it. That's Dr. Fucci again, underscoring the importance of what we do now, underscoring the importance of leadership. NBC is now reporting that Dr. Brian Monahan, the attending physician of Congress and the Supreme Court, has said that he expects 70 to 150 million people in the U.S. to become infected with COVID-19, the coronavirus. And the World Health Organization has declared that it's a global pandemic. It's rapidly spread to over 120,000 people inside the U.S. While the virus seems to be slowing in China where it originated, it's picking up pace in other countries, including here at home, where it's spread to across at least 36 states. But the storm is hitting. We're taking on water. People are drowning. And stakes is high. And the waves are crashing across every element of our society. And that includes the stock market. Trump's beloved stock market. The market can see it. And it's reacting violently. And the Dow opened down more than 1,800 points on concerns about the coronavirus, of course, and oil. 
A 15-minute trading halt was actually called after global stocks plunged. We're following a news alert this morning as we watch Wall Street, a dramatic drop. The Dow Jones Industrial down over 1,800 points to start the day at 23,979. Seven's Alex Jaramus is back in the Satellite Center to tell us more. Alex? And Christine and Diana, the breaking news right now is this is actually a live look at the big board, and it is frozen. That's because we have now entered a trading halt for the next 15 minutes. The New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ both in a trading halt, and that is because within the last four minutes or so, the S&P 500 was down 7%. That is what caused the trading halt for 15 minutes. Airlines, travel companies, almost every sector of our economy is being hit by this storm. And we dug into it pretty deeply last episode with Stephanie Rule, the chief business correspondent for NBC. Go and check that out if you haven't heard it already. But of course, this is much more than about dollars and cents. It's about people. And we still don't know how many people have even been tested. How many Americans have been tested at this point? Uh, We don't know exactly how many because uh, hundreds of thousands of our tests have gone out to private labs and hospitals that currently do not report into CDC. We're working with the CDC and those partners to get an IT reporting system up and running, hopefully this week, where we would be able to get that data to keep track of how many we're testing. Uh, We we think we've got throughput at the moment, probably 10,000 a day or could be getting tested by the end of the week, 20,000 a day, according to a study by AEI that that I heard about. We've got now 2.1 million tests available and 1.1 mm-hmm. million have shipped. Um, we actually have a surplus at the moment that are awaiting orders uh, to be shipped. But you up don't, you don't know? You honestly don't know? You don't know how we, many people have been tested? Well, because a private vendor shipped most of those 1.1 million that shipped were from a private vendor selling to their customers. And those entities that use their tests do not have to report back to CDC. But we're trying to set up a reporting system where they would in the, fact uh, do that. The- That's CNN's John Berman with Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar. Blah, blah, blah. He doesn't know. He doesn't have any idea. But there's one thing we do know. One person who hasn't been tested. Uh, Thank you, Mr. President. Has Uh, he been tested? Have you been tested? I have not been tested for the coronavirus. Has the president been tested? He's been in contact with people who were in proximity to somebody who had the virus. Let me uh, be sure and get you an answer to that. I honestly don't know the answer to the question, uh, but, um, but we'll refer that question and we will get you an answer from the White House uh, physician uh, very quickly. Vice President Mike Pence hasn't been tested. And President Mayhem hasn't said he has been tested. So it looks like President Mayhem may be refusing to be tested, always not leading by bad example. He continues to refuse. And here's what Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi had to say about that. Should the president be tested? He had contact with Congressman Collins and Congressman Gates. The president should be tested. Tested for what? For coronavirus. Oh, yeah. You think he should be? I've thought he should be tested for a long time now. And there's been a lot of stupidity to go around including Rick Santelli, a dude on CNBC who apparently wants to give the coronavirus to everyone. Think about how the world would be if you tried to 
quarantine everybody because of the generic type flu. Now, I'm not saying this is the generic type flu, but maybe we'd be just better off if we gave it to everybody and then in a month it would be over because the mortality rate of this probably isn't going to be any different if we did it that way than the long-term picture. But the difference is we're re- wreaking havoc on global and domestic economy. He really said that. And he's wreaking havoc on common sense. He's obviously failing to lead. He's part of the problem. But he's not the only one who's failing to lead. It's far too common in Washington leadership right now. And that unfortunately includes the Surgeon General. If people are going to go out there, we want them to be extra cautious. We want them to wash their hands frequently. And I was with the president on Friday. And I just said, sir, when's the last time you've washed your hands? And he said, I washed my hands just a few minutes ago. We want to make sure if folks are out there who are at risk, they're taking extra precautions. But speaking of being at risk, mm-hmm. the president, he sleeps less than I do, and he's healthier than what I am. And so that's the other reason that this messaging is hard, because there are 70-year-olds who run marathons and are healthier than some 30-year-olds. It's really well, focusing on the comorbidities, on the medical problems, heart disease, lung mm. disease, immunocompromised folks, in addition to that combination of older age that seems to put people most at risk. The Surgeon General has no idea what's happening. Surgeon General Jerome Adams, who is maybe in his 40s and looks pretty fit, thinks that President Trump is healthier than he is. Awesome. Dr. Ronnie Jackson called and he'd like his stupidity back, please. But the storm is growing. The storm of stupidity and incompetence, most of all, especially in Washington. But thankfully, some local leaders across America are taking action because they can't wait for Washington. And that's what leadership's all about, taking decisive action. And sometimes that includes extreme measures, like deploying the National Guard. New Rochelle is a particular problem. It is uh, what they call a cluster. The numbers have been going up. The numbers continue to go up. The numbers are going up unabated. Uh, And we do need a special Uh, public health strategy for New Rochelle. That's New York Governor Andrew Cuomo announcing the deployment of the New York National Guard to New Rochelle, New York, which is not far from where I grew up. My great-grandmother actually used to live in New Rochelle. But schools and buildings in the city, the center of the state's outbreak, will be shut, and the National Guard will help by distributing food and doing cleaning. So there are more than 1,000 cases of the virus in the U.S. that we know of, including more than 170 declared in New York, which has the third highest total among states after Washington and California. And here's the mayor of Nourishell, Noam Bromson. The Guard is here to provide us with operational and logistical support. They're not here to militarize Nourishell. They're not here to provide policing functions. They're not going to be erecting roadblocks. But there are these logistical challenges which are far beyond the capacity of a city our size to handle, including delivering thousands of meals on a daily basis to students. That's why the Guard is here. They're here to help. Uh, I realize it could be unsettling because few of us are familiar with having a Guard presence, but as we reflect on what it is they're actually doing, I think uh, any public concerns will subside. So the National Guard is again being called upon to help. I actually served in the New York National Guard. I was in the Guard on 9-11. And many of us served at Ground Zero in the security and rescue efforts. And like National Guard soldiers in states across America, they've been called up for a variety of missions since 9-11, ranging from protecting bridges and tunnels to responding to wildfires in California to helping hurricane victims in Louisiana and other states nationwide. The National Guard is designed to be the helpers. We've also got to remember to help the helpers, too. 
And what a shitty activation for those New York National Guard soldiers, right? It's important to remember, many of these National Guard troops in New York also served at Ground Zero on and after 9-11. They deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, and they've been serving on bridge, airport, and tunnel duty since 9-11. But will they get hazardous duty pay? We'll see. We need to have their back. Because this is a time for the military to shine. And they're reacting across the country and around the world. As they've had to crack down on travel, they've canceled meetings, and the coronavirus has spread across the globe, including to places where our troops serve. And out of an abundance of caution, the Secretary of Defense has postponed his travel to India, Uzbekistan, and Pakistan until a later date to remain in the U.S. to help manage the Department of Defense response. I've been very critical of Secretary of Defense Esper, but I'm hoping this is a time where he shines. Because the DOD, the Department of Defense, lives in a world of reality and a world of threats. Threats that don't stop for Washington's stupidity. Because forever war doesn't stop for coronavirus. So as coronavirus hits the shores of America overseas, two Americans were killed in Iraq during an anti-ISIS mission, and four other service members were wounded. The Pentagon has identified two Marine Raiders as those killed in action. Gunnery Sergeant Diego DiPongo of Simi Valley, California, and Captain Moises A. Navas of Germantown, Maryland. Both were 34 years old, and both were assigned to 2nd Marine Raider Battalion, Marine Forces Special Operations Command in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. They both enlisted in the Marine Corps in 2004, and both men completed multiple combat deployments. Pongo is survived by his daughter and parents. Navas is survived by his wife, daughter, three sons, parents, and brother. And it took six hours to get to them. Why? Why did it take so long? We know it was a remote region, but also... Maybe having more Kurdish allies would have been helpful in a situation like this. Maybe someone can ask President Mayhem. If he ends up on quarantine, he'll have plenty of time to think about it. And he can go back and think about Iran. Remember Iran? Our troops do. Because as coronavirus continues to rampage across the headlines, there is breaking news out of the Middle East. Two more Americans and a British national were killed in a rocket attack on a military base in Taji, Iraq. It looks like it was the work of Iran again raising the prospect that in the midst of all this, military tensions could flare up in the region yet again. Because make no mistake, as coronavirus hits America and our allies, our enemies are celebrating. And U.S. Central Command spokesperson Captain William Urban has confirmed that two U.S. service members and one coalition service member were killed by the Katusha rocket attack. Now, as any time there's a casualty, you can support TAPS, the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, and be a helper. Because the wars don't stop for coronavirus. And the troops that were wounded in that attack, when they return home, they may end up in a VA hospital. And I've got another issue for you that maybe is the most underreported part of the coronavirus outbreak. The VA could be hit especially hard. 
VA is the largest healthcare system in America, serving about 9 million veterans, but half are 65 and older. And VA has been awful about sharing information. If President Trump and VA Secretary Wilkie don't step up, coronavirus could devastate this community. And this is not getting enough attention. Not many folks know that VA is the last line of defense in the U.S. against a national health emergency, including a pandemic. The last time the VA publicly released its pandemic plan was in 2006 for a flu outbreak. But not enough information is coming out of the VA, which has been like a black hole with almost no press releases or briefings. And mind-bogglingly, last week, VA Secretary Wilkie declined an offer for additional resources from lawmakers on Capitol Hill, saying he believed the VA was prepared for a potential outbreak. Overconfidence in times like this can be deadly. The VA has at least 11 veterans who've already tested positive for coronavirus. Two in Puget Sound, Washington, one in Denver, Colorado, two in Portland, Oregon, one in Louisiana, two in Oklahoma City, one in Southern Nevada, one in Atlanta, and one in Memphis, Tennessee. And I'm sure if your father or mother or grandmother or grandfather is in a VA nursing home right now, you expect more than for Congress to just be updated. It's time for relentless oversight and the hardest questions possible from the media focused on the VA. It's another time for the media to lead. And it's time for all Americans to lead. Don't wait for Washington. Step up in your area and take action. And coming up, Chris Fussell will help show you how. If over 100 million Americans are expected to contract the coronavirus, we need to get ready. But don't be scared. Be prepared and stay vigilant. That includes going to the CDC website and getting good information. And the CDC, of course, recommends the following. Clean your hands often. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Stay at home if you're sick. Cover your coughs and sneezes. Wear a face mask if you're sick. And clean and disinfect frequently touched surfaces daily. That means tables, doorknobs, light switches, countertops, desks, keyboards, faucets, and sinks. But I'm not a virus expert. The CDC is, and I recommend you go there for continued updates and good information. And here are a few not from the CDC, but from me. Most of all, stay calm. As Chris will share later in our conversation, calm breeds calm. We need cool heads, and staying calm is one thing everybody can do to help. And another big one, don't share crap. Check before you text, post on Facebook, or retweet. Share only good information that you verified from trusted sources like the CDC. And if you're looking for a way to help explain this to your kids, I found something for you. Here's the Wiggles. Before you eat food. After you play with animals. And after you use the toilet. Wash your hands. Wet your hands. Use liquid soap. Lather your hands and rub them round. And count to fifteen. Ready? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Rinse your hands, towel or air them dry. With a towel or your sleeve Now your hands are clean Wet your hands Use liquid soap 
gather your hands and rub them round. And count to fifteen. Ready? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Rinse your hands, towel or air them dry. Turn off the tap with a towel or your sleeve. Communicating situations like this to children can be one of the hardest parts. But the Wiggles will make you smile. The Wiggles will make you dance. And maybe there's more reason to dance. Maybe the campaign for the Democratic nominee is finally closer to an end. The 2020 storm to find the Democratic nominee may be dying down. Or it may just be the eye of the storm. So the biggest ships in the storm have sunk. And only two remain, but one is taking on water, and the other is gaining steam fast. As predicted in our last episode, another ship was sunk, and that means one of our last remaining holdouts, Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. Warren is out. She made a massive impact, and she may have been the single smartest candidate in the race, She inspired and motivated people all across the country, and I think for good reason. Can you talk a little bit about the role that you think that gender plays in this young woman? So, it was, uh, uh, I stood in that voting booth and I looked down and I saw my name on the ballot, and I thought, wow, kiddo, you're not in Oklahoma anymore. that it really was a moment of thinking about how my mother and dad, if they were still here, would feel about this. Um, I had gotten a long email from my nephew and uh, how proud his dad, my brother, is and how they were all had their plans to vote and had met other people. And it is, it's these long ties um, for that moment standing in the booth I miss my mom and my daddy. Um, gender in this race, you know, that is the trap question for every woman. Uh, if you say, yeah, there was sexism in this race, everyone says, whiner. And if you say, no, there was no sexism, about a bazillion women think, what planet do you live on? Um, I promise you this. I'll have a lot more to say on that subject later on. And she definitely will. I'm actually a big fan of Senator Warren. She wasn't my choice for president, but she came farther faster than few I've seen in politics. I actually worked with her on a number of issues to include the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was very effective and very helpful to veterans in particular. But she'll be back. But she's up for grabs and can make a huge difference. But it's looking more and more like the nomination is done. Because Joe Biden is rolling like thunder. Thunder, feel the thunder. Lightning and the thunder. Biden is on a roll. He dominated Super Tuesday 2, or what I call Terrific Tuesday, winning Idaho with 20 delegates, 
Michigan with a big 125 delegates, Mississippi with 36 delegates, and Missouri with 68 delegates. Sanders only won North Dakota, and so far Washington is too close to call. There's a big 89 delegates there. But Sanders continued to get crushed in the South. It's the same wall he hit in 2016. And to think it wouldn't happen again this year is really to fail to understand that part of America. But as of this recording, Washington was still too close to call, with the two candidates separated by about 2,000 votes out of more than a million counted. But since we're focused on Washington, big props to everyone in Washington who voted, and props to Washington State's smart vote-by-mail system, which enabled high turnout, over a million people, despite the coronavirus outbreaks that have been hitting that state harder than anywhere else in America. People in Washington are tough, even when they're knocked down. And so is Joe Biden. Just over a week ago, many of the pundits declared that uh, this candidacy was dead. Now we're very much alive. And and although although there's a way to go, it looks like we're going to have another good night. It's more than a comeback, in my view, our campaign. It's a comeback for the soul of this nation. This campaign is taking off, and I believe we're going to do well from this point on. And I want to thank Bernie Sanders and his supporters for their tireless energy and their passion. We share a common goal, and together, we'll defeat Donald Trump. We'll defeat him together. Tonight, we are a step closer to restoring decency, dignity, and honor to the White House. That's our ultimate goal. That's what he had to say after the big win on Super Tuesday, too. It was sober, clear, and a healing tone from Biden. I think exactly what America needs right now. But also, he sounds tired. It's been an exhausting few weeks. We're all tired. But Biden and Sanders both seem very tired. And it's only March. But this March so far, and this big Super Tuesday, too, is another example that America is not as liberal as many people thought. It's also a time to realize how much people hate Trump. It's not as much about loving Biden as it is believing he's the best chance to defeat President Mayhem. Beating Trump is the great unifier. And that's part of why the support around Biden continues to coalesce. But they're not there yet. And Dems being Dems will, of course, eat their own for at least a little bit longer. No matter how bad this month has been for Sanders, he's not going anywhere yet. If you think otherwise, you don't know Sanders. He and his people are going to fight tooth and nail to the end. And maybe beyond. For some, no matter what the cost. And Dems will continue to fight each other at least a little longer. That was a Biden event in Detroit where some Green New Deal protesters interrupted his speech. At some point, Biden's senior advisor and now default head of security, Simone Sanders, entered the fray and got knocked down. You can hear a cop helping her up in that audio. She's the same senior staffer who tackled a person on stage who tried to get to Biden. It's getting nasty out there. And Sanders, as predicted, is not going to go quietly. And he's still racking up some interesting supporters. Well, let me just say this. Later on today... Uh, We're going to have the support, I believe, here in Grand Rapids of Jesse Jackson. 
Uh, and as I think you well know, you know Jesse, Jesse has been uh, one of the great civil, light, civil rights leaders in the modern history of this country. He changed American politics uh, with the concept of the Rainbow Coalition, bringing blacks and whites and Latinos together in 84. In 88, he has been a leader in helping to transform this country, an aide to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So we're proud. So Sanders has Jesse Jackson, who I haven't heard about in about 20 years, but he's proud of the diverse group of people that's supporting him, which includes a lot of young people, including Halsey. I'm Halsey. I'm a singer, songwriter and activist. Hello. Hello. And I am officially endorsing Bernie Sanders for president. Bernie has been fighting for me since before I was alive. A queer woman in a multiracial family who was raised poor in an American suburb. A woman who got into the college of her dreams and couldn't afford to go. A person physically tormented by a reproductive health disorder that I couldn't afford to treat. A person who has repeatedly needed access to medical assistance, housing assistance, financial assistance, abortion, all before 21 years old, just so I could stay alive. Now I'm considered fortunate, lucky, even then, comparatively to the rest of the working class of America. And now, my financial privilege protects me from the effects of marginalization that would have previously been fatal for me. So today, I fight for her, too. That girl, who wasn't protected. And Bernie was fighting for me before I was even born. That's powerful. I love her music. And her message. Even if I don't love her candidate. And I hope that she and all the other supporters of Sanders can eventually rally around the Jon Snow that has become Joe Biden. But they won't do that just yet. And what's crucial now is what Sanders does. No amount of love or outreach from Biden will matter if Sanders doesn't tap out and direct his people to Biden. And even then, there are going to be lots of holdouts who will never accept Biden. Some Dems will always eat their own, no matter what. But Sanders will have a powerful and important choice to make in the next few weeks. Maybe the most important choice of his life to stay in and keep fighting and pushing and cursing the system, or to join the team and focus on the common enemy. Because we're going to need everybody we can get. Halsey, Jesse Jackson, Killer Mike, Public Enemy, Dick Van Dyke, AOC. They'd all be helpful guns to have in the looming larger fight against Trump. Because they're starting to line up around Biden. And that includes one very, very big gun, Kamala Harris. I just wanted you guys to know, I have decided that I am with great enthusiasm going to endorse Joe Biden for president of the United States. I believe in Joe. I really believe in him and I have known him for a long time. One of the things that we need right now is we need a leader who really does care about the people and who can therefore unify the people. And I believe Joe can do that. Um, I am supporting Joe because I believe that he is a man who has lived his life with great dignity. Um, he is a, a public servant who has always worked for the best of who we are as a nation. And we need that right now. There is so much at stake in this election, guys. So join me in supporting Joe and let's get this done. She's a powerful addition to the Biden machine. And it seems like they're all lining up now. And that includes Senator Cory Booker. I cannot tell you how pleased and happy I am to be here. We announced early in the morning. Uh, that I was officially endorsing Joe Biden for yeah. president. Yeah. Now, now, somebody, I don't know if there's anybody here, but there might be some people that want to know why I'm endorsing Joe Biden. Now, I want to tell you right now, 
It should be obvious. Right. My, my whole campaign for President of the United States was about the idea that we need to bring this country together. That we are a nation that is too divided. That we are a nation where we know this election is not a referendum on one guy in one office. It's a referendum on who we are and who we must be to each other. Yes. And so when you look out at the future of this country and you see that we have a potential to have a Joe Biden who is truly the state's person in our party, who is truly the one that's calling us to stand together, not to fall apart, who understands, as he said to me in the car ride over here, the soul of our nation is aching right now. There are people afraid right now. There are people who see that the darkness has descended into their own personal lives and their own families. And so for me, it is obvious that Joe Biden is the person. It's obvious because of, with a wounded nation, that it's obvious to me that Joe Biden is a healer. It's obvious to me at a time where our nation seems to speak more about building walls, we need a president who is going to be a bridge builder. Yeah. It's obvious to me that at a time that darkness has descended, we need a president who is a light worker. We have had enough of a president that does demeaning. It's time that we have a president that does redeeming. Yeah. Booker's right. We're going to need a healer. After this primary, after Corona, after Trump, we will need a healer. We'll also need some math. And Biden now has that, too. Andrew Yang, I see you've been writing on your paper a lot. We haven't heard from you a little bit. Um, you haven't. Where, where do you see the race right now? Where do you see this going for Joe Biden? Uh, I believe that Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee. And I've always said I'm going to support whoever the nominee is. So I hereby am endorsing Joe Biden to be not just the nominee for the Democratic Party, but the next president of the United States. And I say this uh, having supported Bernie Sanders in 2016. Bernie was an inspiration for me, inspired my run. Uh, but the math says Joe is our prohibitive nominee. We need to bring the party together. Uh, we need to start working on defeating Donald Trump in the fall. Yep, Biden's got Andrew Yang and the Yang gang. He's got the math guy. And the math looks pretty damn good for Biden right now. So good that some, like Marine Corps veteran James Carville, say it's time to shut this sucker down. What are the voters saying tonight? What needs to happen right now? They are saying something very clearly. I'm a tip of a hat to Guy Fawkes. Remember, remember, this is all about November. These voters want to shut this thing down. I mean, you can just look all across the spectrum of the Democratic Party and people are saying, we made our decision. This is who we're going with. And Senator Sanders may not break threshold in Mississippi. He's at 15.3 right now. And we got to acknowledge that he created a movement. He, he did some, some, some truly remarkable things in American politics. And, and certainly Vice President Biden, we've got to talk to him and, and discuss this. But we also, we can't, we can't diss these Democratic voters who are just coming out in, in every corner of this country saying, let's get on with this thing. Now, our mission as a party is to defeat Donald Trump. According to 538, there's a 99 to 1 chance that, that Vice President Biden is going to be the nominee. Let's shut this puppy down and let's move on and worry about November. This thing is decided. There's no reason to keep it going, but not even a day longer. But no matter what Carville says, it ain't over yet. And that comment might actually be a gift to Sanders right now. And it won't exactly help unite the party right now. Bernie's down, but he refuses to tap out. And he ain't going down just yet. 
he finally has an opportunity to go one-on-one with Biden in the next debate. That'll be the biggest stage yet for his ideals and for his supporters. And he's not dropping out before that. And with the NBA on hold and maybe other sports to come, ratings for that debate could be the highest we've ever seen. So get your popcorn ready. There's at least one more Democratic debate Sunday, March 15th. Only Biden and Sanders, one-on-one, in Phoenix. No Tulsi Gabbard and no crowd. There will be no live audience and no spin room. So maybe there can be a silver lining or two from coronavirus. This is just one example. I think this is how every debate should be done. But it ain't over yet. So it's at least another week or two of Democrats eating their own while Trump sits on the sidelines and stocks his ammo and waits for the big fight. And as I shared last week, there's still a flood of primaries coming, assuming Sanders doesn't drop out throughout March, into April, and maybe into May or June. If you haven't heard my summary and my predictions, go back and check out the last episode. But the storm of the Democratic nomination process could rage all the way into the convention in July and maybe beyond. We shall see. Keep checking that radar. So, especially when the storm winds blow the loudest, or the rain falls the hardest, some step out into the wind to help others. I always tell you to look for the helpers, and remind you that they can come in many forms. Sometimes, that includes forms that are not even human. Here's a cool story to give you a break from the madness. This week, the Air Force released a very special photo of a very different kind of American hero, a very different kind of helper. The photos popped up on social media, showing half a dozen Mark VII marine mammal systems, also known as dolphins, aboard a C-17 Globemaster III transport plane. The Mark VII's, or dolphins, were being transported to an undisclosed location, reportedly for a training exercise. They show at least six Mark VII's in blue, water-filled cradles, The dolphins are suspended in what looks like stretchers to hold them in place for a long trip. How cool is this? After the pod, Google it and show it to your kids. It'll be a good project for you to do together if you end up locked in the house for the next two weeks. I'll also post it on our social media sites for Angry Americans. The U.S. Navy maintains an unknown number of dolphins have been trained to locate undersea mines. But the Navy, being the Navy, can't simply refer to them as dolphins. So instead, the service has assigned them an official designation, the Mark 7 Marine Mammal System. And these Mark 7s are designed to search a designated stretch of water for sea mines. Once a dolphin locates one, it releases a tag next to the mine. And the tag floats up to the surface, marking the mine's location for human naval people to investigate and neutralize. Now, It may sound a little unusual using animals in the modern military, but dolphins work very well and can search an area much more quickly than human divers. We don't know much else about the photos, including the dolphins' final destination, so they're out there somewhere, in very deep waters, looking out for our friends. So remember, when we say look for the helpers, they might not be human. So from heroic dolphins to a different kind of heroic sea mammal... We're taking on water in America, and some people are drowning. Stakes is high, maybe more than any other time since we've been doing this show. And in this episode, I don't want to scare you. That doesn't help, and you get enough of it everywhere else in the media. Nope. In this episode, I'm not going to scare you. I'm going to prepare you with some storm shutters of information and coaching from a true leadership master. 
someone who can show you what real leadership is all about and what it means to be a hero and how you can be heroic. Someone who's been through the toughest storms and someone who can help us all through the storms to come. As America scrambles to face the unprecedented chaos of coronavirus, in this episode, we have a riveting conversation with one of the most impressive leaders of our time. Chris Fussell is a man who knows chaos, and he helps guide you through it with powerful insights and lessons learned. He was steeled by leadership roles in the most selective special operation units in the military. Chris is a leader that'll teach you how to thrive in chaos. He led in the most elite units in the military, the Naval Special Warfare Development Group and Navy SEAL Teams 2 and 8 on some of the most critical missions of our generation. After spending 16 years at the tip of the spear for America's most urgent and complex national security challenges and serving as aide-de-camp to General Stanley McChrystal as he commanded the Joint Special Operations Command, or JSOC, in Iraq, Chris now teaches leadership at Yale University. He speaks to packed audiences worldwide, and he coaches top leaders and companies around the globe. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Team of Teams, New Rules of Engagement for a Complex World, and the bestseller, One Mission, How Leaders Build a Team of Teams. He now serves as the president of McChrystal Group, an elite advisory services management consulting and leadership development firm in Washington, D.C. A former wrestler with a degree in philosophy, Chris is a true warrior philosopher and citizen soldier of the highest regard. He has a Master of Arts in Irregular Warfare from the Naval Postgraduate School and received the Pat Tillman Award for the highest peer-rated special operations officer in the program. His thesis focused on the interagency collaboration and intelligence sharing processes that drove effective cross-silo collaboration during the peak of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Chris is a senior fellow for national security at New America, a Washington, D.C.-based nonpartisan think tank dedicated to understanding the next generation of challenges facing the United States. He's also a dedicated husband and father of two, who's actively involved in nonprofits dedicated to empowering veterans and their families. He's on the board of directors at the Navy SEAL Foundation and is a lifelong member of the Council on Foreign Relations. I've known Chris for over a decade. And he'll take us through a conversational masterclass on how to lead in adversity. Whether you're leading a Fortune 100 company, a small business, a classroom of students, or your own family, this indispensable conversation will equip you with tools to survive and thrive in the face of coronavirus or any challenge you might face. We examine whether a military draft is needed. We talk about the leadership skills of the remaining presidential candidates. We go behind the scenes of life as an elite Navy SEAL leader and examine the ever-expanding role of special operations forces in modern America. Chris is the best of the best. He's another inspiring, important America that shaped what America was, what it is, and what it will be. He's the best of what America can do, and the best of what America can be. If you're feeling anxious, concerned, frustrated, scared, hearing Chris's story, his insights, and his coaching is going to lift you up. And it's going to steal you for what's to come in this country, whatever that might be. So take a deep breath and enhance your calm. Instead of the madness of cable news, the anxiety of Twitter, or the stress of whatever corona crap someone just texted you, I've got something useful for you 
in this time of need. It's a poncho of integrity. It's a lifeboat of information. It's a go bag of impact. And it's a storm shelter of inspiration. Schools all across America are now closed. And everyone's moving to virtual classes, virtual working, virtual learning. So welcome to a virtual master class on leadership in the face of corona, in the face of chaos, and in the face of adversity. Welcome to a safe space. Welcome to your shelter from the storm, a place you can rest up, get a hot meal of content, and a warm bed of knowledge to help you get ready for whatever comes next. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 50. There's a storm coming, I can see it in her eyes, I can hear it in the way she says. Ladies and gentlemen, angry Americans around the country and around the world, welcome to the Classic Car Club Manhattan for a conversation with an exceptionally special talented, interesting, inspiring guest. I am really happy that you're here, man. The great and powerful Chris Fussell is here with us today. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. Great to, uh, great to connect. Great to find an, another one of your secret and hidden spots inside of Manhattan. Truly, truly impressive. So never know where it's going to be. If, if a Navy SEAL tells me that he's impressed by my secret spots, <laughs> I'll take that as a badge of honor. Yeah, well-deserved, well-deserved. Well, I'm glad you made the trip up from D.C., um, what's it like riding on a train from DC right now yeah, with a, the coronavirus? It's a, it's a bit empty, right? We're here, uh, braving the, uh, the, the Corona, uh, frenzy. Um, yeah, I usually come up in the cell. I'm probably up here three, three times a month, something like that. Um, third empty third or third full relative to normal crowds, uh, a little ghost street out in town here in, in Manhattan, as you will union station down in DC, the same thing. Um, but I, my impression is people are doing what they're being asked to do, which is like, you know, be thoughtful about big interactions. Um, we've certainly pulled down the amount of travel. Uh, this is the, honestly, the one, my one exception of the, of the month so far, come up and figured it was just me and you talking at safe distance. So we'll be, we'll be okay. And we have drinks. That's right. So the, the first question I ask of all my guests, Chris Fussell, tell us what is your adult beverage of choice and why? Uh, so we went with. Hudson uh, bourbon, given given the location, uh, bourbon would be my go-to drink, and you know here in New York should should be Hudson, right? It's a great it's a great bourbon. Why do you like bourbon? Uh, that's a great question. I think um, if I was completely honest, it was probably coming up through the military and the SEAL teams, sort of the go-to you know bottle of bourbon as somebody's leaving, and so that just becomes the thing that you share around the team room, and it. Brings back some fond memories. Uh, is there is there a toast? Is there a seal toast or a toast? A Chris Fussell toast? <laughs> None that would be appropriate for my kids to hear <laughs> on air someday. So, so we'll leave it at great to see, see you. Great to see you, man. So interesting times, but you are a man whose entire adult life has been thrust into interesting times. 
So there's a lot I want to cover with you because I think you're one of the most impressive dynamic leaders that I know, and I would argue in, in America. So having you with us for a conversation right now is so timely because you're kind of a master of chaos. Um, but I want to go back to where it started before you became the president of the McChrystal Group, before you became a Navy SEAL, before you became a best-selling author, you were a philosophy major, <laughs> right? So, yes. so tell me about that part of your background and maybe for folks who don't know, how did you go from being a philosophy major to being a, a Navy SEAL leader? Well, that part was easy because with a philosophy degree, you can do two, two things. You can become a philosopher, which I was not smart enough to do, or you can become a Navy SEAL, I think. It's, a two, <laughs> it's very binary. Uh, yeah, I, I went to University of Richmond, a small uh, school in Virginia, um, small philosophy program. I was attracted to that. I think in one, in one part I started because my 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 dad, who I looked up to, had uh, had a, gone to Georgetown, and everybody at Georgetown in his day had you had a philosophy minor, so um, he never talked about it. But you know, you emulate your dad, so I was sort of attracted. Then I got into the classes, and and what I found was, you know, I'm not a mathematician, I'm not a scientist. Um, a philosophy degree. I'm still a huge believer in a humanities degree, uh, which I advise my own kids on when they're old enough to, to take off to advanced degrees. Um, it teaches you how to deconstruct an argument, how to think critically, how to write something, a, a long form, which is a dying art, as we all know in today's world. Um, so I'm a huge, huge believer. I'm, you know, it's, it's a long cycle decision. Uh, studying that early on, you for 10 or 15 years, it's kind of useless. Then you, when you're suddenly in your 40s, you realize, well, I know how to think. Uh, I was trained how to think critically, deconstruct an argument, et cetera. So I've, I've, I've really reaped the benefits of it. So how'd you go from there to the Navy? Talk about you know, when you joined the Navy, why you joined the Navy, and then if you can briefly summarize your, your time in the Navy and what you're able sure. to share or what you think is most important to share. Yeah, I finished college in 96. And so, you know, totally different world, as we all know, like peacetime environment. Uh, we weren't even thinking about what the world would look like at this at this point. Um, I was the youngest of four kids. My dad, uh, my uncle, my grandfather, you know, so several folks in my family had all served in the military. My mom's brother was in the SEAL teams in Vietnam. My dad was in the Green Berets during those years as well. Never deployed into Vietnam. Uh, spent his active duty time in the Green Berets down at, at training site in, in Panama back when we were still there. Um, so I grew up under the lore of sort of that type of service. And I think that combined with being, you know, the runt of a pretty aggressive four kid litter. Um, not surprisingly, if you know any younger, youngest brothers or youngest sibling, um, we all grew up as wrestlers and athletes, et cetera. I was by far the least uh, talented physically in my family. So just getting destroyed by my brothers, and even my sister throughout my childhood, just, you know, it gives you that bit of a complex, like, okay, I'm out to prove myself. Right. Um, the, uh, and, and we got progressively less talented physically, but I developed enough grit through wrestling to say, okay, I, I, I know how not to quit. And wrestle, wrestling translations into SEAL selection quite well. Um, I didn't think I was cut out for it, honestly, just my own sort of reflection until later in college. I had an older brother that had also gone into the SEAL teams um, and did a 20-year career. And my thinking was we were, we were close going, going through college. All right, if he's done it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a shot. And um, it was totally different reasons, though. You know, you joined the, the service pre-9-11 at 21, 22 years old. You, you, 
I, at least I wasn't thinking like grand visions about defensive freedom, et cetera. You're looking for the next challenge. This is a really exciting community. I'd grown up on small teams, the SEAL teams. That's what it's all about. So, um, and then like most people in the, in the military, your, your reason for staying pivots and it's much different than the reason you, you came in in the first place. So 16 years total in the Navy. That's right. When I met you, you were still on active duty. That was a long time ago now. And probably at, at one of the heights of the workload for you and your guys, the SEALs are often misunderstood, glorified. You know, this, this idea of, of movie characters. Um, people probably think that SEALs are more my size. <laughs> I'm 6'2", 230. But in my experience, more of them are your size, Yeah, which is... How, how big are you? 5'8", uh, buck 45 these days. but And a philosophy major. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, but I was 160 at one point, so I used to be big. <laughs> but compact, <laughs> smart, gritty, dynamic. But, but talk about, um, if you can, what did you do in the SEALs? I- explain to folks who may be outside this world, what was your job? What was your, what was your experience? And, um, you know, it, it was unique, right? Yeah. And, and maybe you can help me show how unique it was. I mean, maybe there were more NFL quarterbacks than there are guys in America doing what you were doing to give a sense of how elite it was, how rare air you were occupying. But can you paint that picture for folks? Sure. Yeah. Um, and if it was unique, it was only through the fortune of, of timing and, and who I was around, the leaders I served under, and like yourself, like w- w- when we joined the military, it just happened to be a very um, pivotal time for our generation. So like I said, joined, joined in the late 90s, we were doing uh, engagement Mission, you know, exercises with our allied nations in Europe, et cetera. It was a really great time. Uh, my now wife, first time she came to visit me, I was on deployment in Europe and we went to, you know, touring castles around the countryside. So totally different world, right? Then post 9-11, um, so I, I, I was East Coast, the SEAL teams were either East Coast or West Coast. So I, I did my, after going through selection in San Diego, did all my time on the East, East Coast. Um, SEAL teams two and eight that are there in, in, in Virginia Beach. Um, I was about five years in when the events of 9-11 occurred. And even then, it took a while for things to change and, and ramp up. The community that I joined in the SEAL teams, um, almost non-recognizable versus what it has become. Like just so much bigger, more professional, uh, discipline in its approach and execution, et cetera. And I was very fortunate to be part of that. So uh, after spending about eight years in those uh six, seven years, I guess, in those teams, I was able to screen and select into development group, um, which is an East Coast based uh, element of the SEAL teams and spent the remaining time of my career in that community, um, which is really where the fortunate part started to happen. I mean, just the most amazing group, not just the SEALs, but that's a that's you become part of a joint community that includes Army, includes uh, Air Force, et cetera, all the services. And then post 2001, under the leadership of Stan McChrystal, he took over this global force in 2003. Um, we were put under this umbrella of change uh, through his leadership. And he said, look, this, we are, you know, thousands of people around the world under this common heading now. And our, we have a singular mission, which is to defeat Al-Qaeda, which no one really understands yet. But I believe this is what Stan McChrystal was saying at the time. We were going to have to fundamentally redesign ourselves, communicate differently, share information differently, make decisions differently and more aggressively down in the field than we've ever done in the past. Not by, you know, two or three degrees of change, order of magnitude different. 
And that was just his hunch, his assessment based on what he was seeing on the battlefield, how quickly Al-Qaeda was, was growing and changing and adapting to the environment, et cetera. I mean, you, were, you remember the early days when we thought, okay, this is a small containable problem. Fast forward two years and you realize this is a global insurgency. And I had the unique privilege of being a position with uh, an amazing tactical organization that to this day continues to execute at the highest level and then spending time with Stan McChrystal on his senior staff and really seeing how the, the senior folks were orchestrating this, this shift at a global level. In, in, in the book with McChrystal, you described the change as, as not like learning new plays, but changing sports, right? An entire organization that was designed to play football. And now you've got to shift that entire organization to play basketball, right? right? And, and that transformation happening post 9-11 in multiple countries, pressures going up. So this, you know, experience I think has, has steeled you for everything this country faces now, whether it's racial division, political upheaval, coronavirus. But I want to go a step deeper if we can to help people understand, Chris, in whatever way you're able to share, you know, how unique are the people that are selected for this role and what kind of things do they do and are they doing right now that people don't realize because Wars don't stop for coronavirus, right? Mm-hmm. This is happening every day when you're not thinking about it. When March Madness is happening, these men and maybe now some women are operating at the highest level possible. But can you paint that picture in whatever way is, is appropriate? Yeah, sure. Um, and it is, um, it's hard to, I mean, we've talked about this, you and I have o- o- over years. The number of folks involved in military service has gone down, I think, to the, to the detriment of who, who we are as a nation. From, you know, a quarter of the country was involved with World War II in some way down to 1% or less in today's service. You boil that down to the special operations community that is being leveraged constantly and has been for going on 20 years now. Um, And you're talking about numbers-wise, personnel-wise, just an absolute rounding error in the big books of of DOD sort of space. Uh, But those are folks who have been working uh, 18 hours a day, seven days a week nonstop for, for 20 years. Um, and I don't say that as a point of exaggeration. I mean, that, that is literally the tempo. Um, and again, I, I know we've, we've, we've bantered these ideas back and forth over the years. I left the service in 2012. Um, in, and when I reflect back on that, there's a whole host of reasons you, you decide to make serious life decisions for, like that. And only in time can you reflect and understand why. One of them was, um, and I'm a pretty resilient, gritty person. I was smoked. I was, I was just exhausted, right? And that's not... Um, I'm not proud of that fact, but it's a, it's a reality. It's reality. Yeah. And I mean, it, it just, for me, it's been an important reflection to say, A, that, that happens to the, the most focused, gritty people out there. And B, there are still guys, operators, and families that have been cranking through it since, since I left. There's new folks that are going to go down the same path. Um, it's, it's the most intense lifestyle and community I've ever seen. And now I've had the privilege of working in uh, very, various parts of high-end industry since I got out of the service. But the, um, the sacrifice from families to, you know, the, to the third grader who doesn't see their parent, uh, but 10% of the year to the spouse, to the operator that's on the front line, losing friends. I mean, it's, it remains very real to, to this day. And why are they so special in what they're asked to do for the country? So uh, describe in whatever way you can carefully, right? Obviously there's classified concerns and other issues. What are they tasked by America to do? Yeah, I think um, at at that level, one of the easiest ways for for most uh, 
of your listeners probably understand it is um, there are organizations in the military. The military is, is by design and very smartly designed a, a top-down sort of very structured enterprise, right? And so, Paul, you're the CEO. You make a decision in the boardroom, it passes down, et cetera, et cetera, and eventually you get to a point of execution and you can sort of map that by process and, and time to impact sort of thing. The military wants to be controlled because it's it's big and create and create real problems if it does something wrong, right? There are other parts, very very small niche parts, where you have to cut through that. And so, senior leadership uh, on the civilian side can reach directly in and talk to certain components of the military, right? So, you you cut through layers and layers and layers, right? Intentionally, but you don't want that to be a huge swath of the enterprise, or you create a lot of chaos. So, most of the forces that you're talking about are kind of in that that. Uh, direct line communication, right? Um, and so as a result, you want to, you're going you're gonna to put more money into that. You're going to uh, be very, very thoughtful in your selection process of the individuals that are in those units, commanding those units, et cetera. Um, but one of the things that uh, sort of the, the misunderstanding that has tri- trickled into sort of the the zeitgeist out there of, of what special operations is. Understandably, you know, we think of SEAL Team, uh, movies, TV shows, et cetera. And to your point, you know, it's everybody's 6'3", can bench press 400 pounds and uh, looks like, you know, cover of GQ or something. Um, the In reality, you're looking in that space for a very thoughtful, disciplined, gritty person. Um, rarely is there a bench press contra- contest on, uh, on an objective, right? So the delta between the capability of our forces and those we're interacting with is not purely a physical one. It's a, a thinking person's game. It's weaponry. It's technology, et cetera. I mean, and the, as I said earlier, the delta between the SEAL teams that I joined in the 90s and now is, as I said earlier, my uncle was a... SEAL in Vietnam. Yeah. The SEALs I joined were closer to his SEAL platoon in Vietnam by, by a significant degree than my first SEAL platoon would be to who's in the field now. Hmm. Right? We've, we've just improved and changed our capabilities at an exponential rate for 20 years straight. It's really incredible. So I want to push a little bit far. What do they do? For people who say, I, I, you know, I, I think they shoot, they shoot bin Laden, right? Like, you know, for 16 years, Checking in with you guys, I felt like I was checking in on friends who were NFL running backs mm-hmm. or quarterbacks, right? Because the physical demands of jumping out of helicopters, falling down, carrying shit, not to mention getting shot at, blown up, etc. Very physically risky, demanding lifestyle, but requiring that high level of cognitive um, discipline mm-hmm. and, and planning just such a, you know, the, the elite warrior class. We've created essentially a warrior class in this country where the civilian is disconnected. But um, I, want, I want a chance for you to talk about the, the unique nature of what we're asking them to do mm-hmm. in terms of missions, if you can. Yeah, I mean, there's, the, there's multiple ways to look at that. Like, what, what were special operations designed to do in the first place, right? And we didn't we didn't invent that history in the United States, right? That goes back, you know, the, the Roman legions had versions of special operations, right? So an easy way to think about that is uh, go back to World War II or 2000 years ago. I've got this big, huge army and I'm moving it in this direction. And the force that that brings to bear is unimaginable to most that haven't been in service. But there's occasionally going to be this real headache problem. You know, I've got this little insurgent group over here that's going to blow up this bridge, and so my tanks won't be able to go across it. I need to get a few folks there really fast, right? Um, so let me create, you know, this ranger unit or a specialized team that can can detach from the mothership, 
go and solve some hard problem and then come back in, right? And to be able to do that, they need special training and weaponry and they're going to be a little bit of a headache. They're going to grow long hair and beards and okay, I'll deal with that, right? Um, because those are going to be headaches that I need, need to solve for. So the classic missions are like re, uh, reconnaissance, direct action, like I need to send some raiders in and hit a, hit a, hit a small target or try to rescue somebody, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's, that's where we were 20 years ago. Those core missions still exist, but I believe one of the important things for all of us to consider as a, as a, as a citizen of, of the U.S. and our political leadership and, and uh, military leadership is how far off that bearing are we getting in our leverage of special operations? Um, I had a, a SEAL chief, so like a senior enlisted member, when I was in my first SEAL platoon, say, be, be wary of the, uh, of the um, what did he call it? The mailbox syndrome. I said, what, what's the mailbox syndrome? He said, well, you know, you've got a bunch of competent folks in your platoon. You'd, you'd happily have them come and like build your mailbox for you, right? Because you know they'll get it done fa- fast and efficiently. And, but you could also just hire a local carpenter, right? Make sure you're being selected right. For, the right, for the right missions, right? And so we've, we've overstressed this force, in my opinion, uh, because it can do whatever it's asked quite well. Uh, but it's a very, very small number of people. And the more we allow ourselves uh, on the civilian side to say, that's my go-to force, uh, not just the SEAL teams, but special operations in general, combined with a little bit of a, you know, uh, sprinkling of intelligence, which, which shows a much bigger role than we like to actually consider, um, the world sort of take care of itself. It's not true. You know, the world's based on very, very long cycle structured relationships um, that sometimes include aircraft carriers being present in certain parts of the world that include diplomatic efforts that can go on for generations, et cetera, et cetera. So special operations does and will always play a critical role. But when we when we honestly assess that it's at the front end of our national policy, not our action, but our national policy, there's real, there's real risk being introduced into the stability of, of the system. There, there was a time when they used to say the 82nd Airborne was the president's 911. But now you guys have kind of become 911, 311, Zappos customer service, right. everything else wrapped into one, right? Like yeah. the, the demands that the president and the defense leadership has, has have put on you is unprecedented, right? But it's also now prepared you for this new phase of your life where you're an author, you're a thought leader, you have been designed and trained and honed to be a problem solver. Mm-hmm. And now you help other people solve problems in the corporate space, in the private sector. And part of why I wanted to have you on now, Chris, is because you're talking about Corona. How do you deal with a emerging morphing um, threat and in, a, in a chaotic environment? And how can you as a leader tackle that? So I wanted to give you a chance to, to expand on if you're a leader of a family if you're a leader of a small business, if you're a leader of a, of a team in an emergency room, you know, what, what are your thoughts and recommendations on how to lead specifically right now in a moment like this? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, you know, to, to your opening comments, riding up on a, a one-third full uh, Amtrak train, you know, it sends a message like this is a real thing, right? There's no, there's no denying it. Um, the amount of schools and businesses, et cetera, that have gone into the remote work status is, is, is real. It affects on the economy. Like you can just look at that every, every day on, on CNBC, et cetera. So uh, undeniable, right? Um, the, the parallels, and one of the reasons we inside of uh, McChrystal, so I've since gone on, obviously, and part- partnered with Stan McChrystal, trying to deliver some of this thinking into industry. Um, but this particular very acute moment, um, 
the the banner of well we'll we'll go to uh, social social distancing, isolation, remote work status, etc. The assumption that that's just a flip of the switch, and we uh, wait three weeks and then get back together. I'm not anywhere near able to com- comment on the d- disease itself and the spread. I'm, I, there are brilliant people that are going to get ahead of that. But the effects on organizations, on their culture, on the economy that we all inside of will have very real uh, impacts very quickly. Um, and leaders need to get ahead of this, right? So one of the, th- one of the striking parallels here is um, Stan McChrystal entered and took over an organization that was top-down structured, designed to give very direct orders and detach small teams. Um, it could be centralized and hierarchical. By, by design. It had been built like that for, for generations, right? And he, he realized, I am now facing a distributed network of human beings that are digitally connected. So my disease that I'm trying to treat is radicalization and uh, violent ide- ideology. And that doesn't have to be in secret rooms anymore. That can be distributed globally at light speed. We have to change the way we operate, right? So he put us into a remote work status. We would use different language, same thing. Everywhere from clusters of hundreds of folks at centralized bases in Iraq, et cetera, to small teams that were on the edge of two or three folks, right? The first team that I was ever part of in his community was three people sitting on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan with some sort of specialized mission, but networked into this, you know, very large global enterprise that he had, he had built. So we had a structured piece where you, you know, allocated assets, et cetera, and you had a very decentralized piece where you could solve problems. The, the, dis, the spread of a, a problem like the coronavirus, it's very similar, right? We're, we're interconnected. People can, anything can travel around the world in 36 hours now. Um, we, we interact with, with each other on a scale that the world, you know, we're not, we've never been this flat before. So the spread isn't surprising when it has this sort of uh, stabilization and, and you know, 14-day period before it pops up, etc. Um, so the numbers are not surprising. What leaders have to recognize is I have to create some sort of network methodology to be able to maintain my stability as an organization while we go through this. It's 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 a very similar process. Right. And so the the methodology which we can I'm happy to dive into. I think there's a lot to learn from what the military has gone through over the past 20 years to be able to communicate like that. That leaders need to learn from very, very quickly. So, so yeah, take us through that, right? Like, let's let's make this a, you know, a a, a masterclass on how to lead in chaos because that's what you do. That's what McChrystal does. It's what your team does. So again, it, it, you could be running a garage, you could be a teacher in a classroom, you could be trying to figure out how to connect your family that's yeah. dispersed across the country. What are Chris Fussell's recommendations for leading your unit? Yeah, I, and you're right. It can, it's going to range from it already is from small to big, Fortune 10 companies down to startups and your you, you know l- local uh, school, etc. And so the at the top of that, w- one of the hard parts on this and the, the challenge for any for any leader is I think the hardest challenge is if you look at great case studies in leadership throughout history, go back as far as you want. It's the it's easy to read that history through a black and white lens. Of course, they were going to do X, right? But if you really dive into it, they, they, they hit a moment where most of us would back down, right? Because they hadn't gotten the directive. Uh, you know, no one told Lincoln to do what he did. No one told MLK to do what he did, right? To, to choose like very big macro examples. It's leaders that get to the edge and say, this is a much bigger problem than anyone can articulate now. I'm going to take the first step and try to solve it. So I think that's number one for, for leaders today. Keep that in mind. This is a bigger problem. There's no playbook hidden in any bunker anyway that says, here's how we deal with this. We can com- 
We can learn lessons from Spanish influenza and other outbreaks, etc. This is new. This is new to our time. So if you're a leader of anything from a, from a mechanic shop to a Fortune 10 company, recognize the importance of your position. Two, start over communicating now. Your people are as nervous times 10 as you are, right? You're getting the updates from the board, et cetera. Um, they are not, right? The only thing they were told was don't come into work on Monday, go to remote status, right? That's, am I going to keep my job? Is my family going to be uh, okay? Are we going to maintain our health care if the company starts to fall apart? I mean, there are major concerns. Figure out any platform you can to start communicating with them. And if your communication is, we don't know what's going on yet, but we will figure this out as a team, that's okay. That's better than silence, right? Mm -hmm. And if you overstate it and say, we've got this all figured out, they know you're lying, right? So just be an honest, real leader with your people and say, we will figure this out as a team and know we're going to get through it together. Um, Then, I mean, those are the first two blocks you have to check. Then you can get into, okay, what's the process whereby we're going to solve for this? Remote communication is not a flip of the switch. It's easy in today's world to connect everybody, right? You and I could be doing this via FaceTime or Skype or whatever platform we want to choose. You could pull in 50 people to listen in real time or 1,000 people. That's at our fingertips. And, but most of that is broadcast, right? I might do my quarterly town hall. Everybody can dial in and I, well, I talked to 5,000 people at the end of the quarter. Yeah, but you're just talking and you're reading from a script. That's not interaction, right? So you have to then look at how do we communicate today when we can all be face-to-face and we, we take for granted the hallway discussions that go on and the you know chatter in the lunchroom that helps us build confidence in our culture. I learned the follow-on. What did Paul really mean when he said that? Build that into remote structure and think how often do we have to communicate and with whom? And what I would say is number three, that when you're thinking about the cycle with which you're communicating, it should be, if you look at like your Outlook calendar today, it should be faster um, if you get together with your leadership team once every Friday, that should be probably two or three times a week. It should be more. So if it's your top 10, it's probably your, now your top 100 plus. Um, and it should be as real as the 10 people around the table that are kind of putting their feet up going, whew, that project went horribly wrong. What are we going to do about it? Figure out how you're going to have those conversations at scale. And the master class that I received in this was watching Stan McChrystal implement this and taught inside the task force that he ran. He had north of 20,000 people every time zone around the world solving everything from like procurement to logistics problems to what are we going to do next literally in the moment on this raid, right? So the entire spectrum uh, from long-term to highly complex. Um, and he had to resynchronize that organization because of the, the rate of change inside of Al-Qaeda on a 24-hour cycle. So every 24 hours, he would sit and stare at a camera wherever he was in the world. And he and his leadership team would have a genuine conversation with upwards of seven or 8,000 people around the world for the first hour, hour and a half of every 24-hour cycle, seven days a week for years on end. That's remote communication. It doesn't happen overnight. So my, my brain is going toward you know two, two extremes. One is White House briefings and the CDC, and the other is family meeting. Right. Like in my family, we sit down, we have a family meeting. We talk about what we're going to do for the weekend or about how the kids are doing in school and thinking about the need to increase that communication, that clarity, that trust for my four-year-old whose school will probably close. Mm-hmm. Explaining to him what that means and thinking about the cascading effects of something as, as, as focused as that. But at the White House level, the CDC level, uh, death rates or what, what's working or what's not, status of, of a vaccine. So when you look at the national 
system. You look at the White House, you look at the CDC, you're a master of deconstructing complex systems. How prepared or unprepared are we as a nation to face this kind of threat, Chris? Yeah, well, I think it's good. I could agree with you more, right? Um, to start at that level, like from, from systems level all the way down to the family level. Um, Stan McChrystal and I have been teaching a, uh, outside of our, our practice, uh, a leadership seminar for a few years together uh, now up at Yale's Jackson School. And one of the points we try to make to students there is um, look at any case study throughout history. The best leaders that we like to think about, they are very, very intentional in their focus. They may be, they may seem erratic. They may get angry. Um, they may waver, but they're nine out of 10 times, extremely intentional. When I walk into a room, I am going to have this effect on 500 people, on three people, on one person, right? So whether you're leading a family or leading an organization, start thinking about the intentionality of those engagements, right? What, what is going on inside of our culture right now? People are nervous, people are scattered, et cetera, et cetera. How can you as a leader solve for that? Set that intention for yourself and start building systems around it. That said, I do worry that um, we are, we've, we've spent 15, 20 plus years now moving into the information age where everything is at everybody's fingertips. We're, we're inundated with white noise and too much information. Uh, what the effect of that will be when we really have to be calmer, more deliberate, more transparent and honest in our communications. Can any leader, regardless of party level, et cetera, have, do we give them the space to do that anymore? I, I don't believe we do for the most part. You are a real outlier in political systems and many times in large organizations, although I think that will correct itself faster. Um, to, to be that honest leader that says, okay, here's where we, were, here's where we are in production of tests. Here's how we're going to distribute them. Here's how, how we're looking at this crisis growing here, here, and here. Um, the one other stream is like a very draconian system like we saw in China. They can just clamp it down, right? We're at the other end of that spectrum. You can solve that historically through honest and transparent communications. I think we've taken that away from ourselves, and we're going to have to regain our footing there in this next uh, six months. Somebody told me once, Chris, when I was going through military training at some point, when the, when the rounds are flying and the, the chaos is louder, you as a leader have to be louder or clearer. Mm -hmm. You have to either raise your volume so they can hear you over the gunfire, or you have to use a hand and arm signal where you put your hand in the face and say, stop, mm -hmm. right? So your, your communication clarity and volume and type has to change with the atmosphere around you, right? Think about Trump right now, trying to cut through everything from uh, fake news to disparate media to you know old people who don't have the internet. He's got to figure out how to communicate effectively across many different spans. Um, can you talk about fear? Because hmm. you're a guy who has experienced things that are unimaginable for the average person. A lot of folks right now listening are scared are nervous. Um, you've, you know, looked into people's eyes, you've trained them on how to deal with that. What can you share with folks that are scared mm -hmm. that has helped you get through times when you or the people you lead are scared? Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's an important point. I think the, um, so maybe I'll, I'll talk about that and maybe bridge over into your, the military analogy. The, um, I'm a huge believer in, I'm, I'm as normal as the next person, probably more so. Um, the, huge believer in understanding the irrationality of fear. Like we're, we're you can't get through, uh, you know, one of the sayings in the, in the SEAL teams was, um, 
to your point, calm breeds calm was our way of saying that, right? If it's, if it's bad, the calmer you are, that's infectious, right? And everybody say, well, Paul's not losing his mind, right? Uh, a great best example is in the Navy is the way that uh, naval aviators are, are, are trained. Uh, you know, a fixed-wing aircraft is an insane contraption, right? Yeah. And one of the things that aviators go through in their training is they, they, they have to listen to their voice as part of their debriefs. And when they're going and doing bombing runs, et cetera, if there's a crackle in their voice, they get dinged for it, right? Because, you're, yeah, you're upside down doing 400 miles an hour and you're about to drop a, drop a bomb. But if you come across to the... The, the army lieutenant on the ground as nervous, well, you just destroyed that entire operation for that guy, right? Um, so, yeah, thinking about, like, am I projecting calm in this situation, I, I think is, is critical. But to your point, the broad sort of projection of fear, and we've had conversations inside my family about this for sure, um, it's easy in, especially in a hyper-connected space, to let that become the problem, right? I mean, a run on toilet paper. Like, what are, what are we doing here, people? Like, let's let's take a breath. This is a serious situation, uh, but we're gonna we're gonna deal with it rationally, um, and let's look at the numbers. It's not something to joke about. Let's take the appropriate precautions, but we're also gonna figure it out, right? Um, the uh, personally, like, very very small example. But when I left the service, I found found myself like transitioning, probably like you did, to to speaking to larger, different sort of corporate audiences. I found that incredibly uh, hard, right? Because I was used to giving military briefings to like-minded people that looked and talked like I did. And suddenly you're in front of these like alien species, right? <laughs> and my anxiety went th- through the roof and I had to sit down and say, what, what's the core of this stress, right? Can I, what's, what's the worst that can happen? Like sort of standard procedures, all of which I'd learned in the military and things like that, I think are very applicable today. Here's, here's the, the actual problem. Here's how we're going to deal with it. Here are the likely and preventable outcomes, right? So let's, let's apply rationality. But to your, to your point, in times like that, it is absolutely critical. And I think we're, again, regardless of party, but we're collectively sort of missing this opportunity. Think about, remember, the early days of the uh, invasion into Iraq. Agree or likely disagree with, with those events, right? Uh, remember, we, we were doing daily and then twice daily briefings out of the, the uh, Pentagon press room. Yeah. And what, what was that doing? That was alleviating, like, hey, we, we're... We're the United States of America. This is going to be fine. Here's what literally happened in the last 12 hours. Um, and things like that should be happening right now. Mm. Who's the voice? You know, should it be the, the president of the United States doing sort of fireside chat? That might be a, a little too much time for someone in that position. To send, but there absolutely should, that should be happening. Communicating broadly. Here's where we are. Here's where we're going. But to the earlier discussion, that requires an honesty about what's winning and not work, working and not working right now in the moment. I don't think we have that luxury anymore. Hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of emotion happening in this country. This show is a lot about exploring emotion. That's, that's you know, the, these trying times that we're all facing and we're all navigating. And I think we're going to look to leaders like you and Stan McChrystal and many others. I think especially in times like this, the country is going to look to experienced leaders to help us guide to help guide us through difficult times, but you are emotional too. You are human beings. You're not just robot samurais that go out to execute American foreign policy. Um, a lot of folks are, are understandably frustrated with what's happening in this country, not just around coronavirus, but in general. And this show is about exploring that. So I'll ask you the question I ask of, of all of our guests, Chris Fussell, what makes you angry? Um, it's a, it's a great question. Um, every time I, I listen to your show, which I love, uh, 
I'm always curious what people are going to say. Um, I, I had someone uh, say to me once, I've never seen you angry. Like, why is that? And I said, I, I get angry. I just don't express it, <laughs> which is probably not healthy um, because I don't like myself when I, when I demonstrate temper. Um, but uh, let's forget the current ongoing crises. Um, probably since, uh, and like you said, we knew each other when I was still in the service, since I've left the service, and I guess I felt this a bit in my, in my active duty time, but it has remained with me. One thing that frustrates me is the false patriotism that we've come to sort of ingrained into the system of, um, I, for example, like I've, I've always appreciated when people like you probably do, uh, thank us for our service, that sort of thing. Um, but we've, we've over leveraged into that space and sort of put, put service members, whether it's special operations or whatever community come from onto the superhuman pedestal. And I remember when I got that in the service, you know, I really appreciate what you guys are on the front line. I would think, Hey, you don't have to thank me. Like I volunteered for this. And frankly, I, I, I really like my job, right? I, I look forward to going forward and doing what we're trying to do. Um, but you could, uh, show up and mow my lawn because my mom, my, my wife's trying to raise a kid while I'm gone. You know, don't, don't forget our families. Like if you are really in this, like participate, if not, mm. um, I appreciate the yellow ribbon that you have on your bumper sticker, but like, let's be honest. Are we all in this together or not? And my, um, there are absolutely pockets in this country that are 100% on board with that. But I think the branding of it has, has consistently frustrated me for 10 or 12 years. Chris, personally, would you support a draft or some kind of um, government service, mandatory service, compulsory service to, to tackle that? Or what, what is your view on how we solve for the fact that guys and gals like you are, you know, getting deployed for 16 years and a lot of other folks are watching American Idol? Yeah. Um, which I don't think is good for our country. I think what we've created is a situation that is great for the military but not great for America where a small group of people continue to serve over and over again. And even smaller group like you and others serve at a much higher level with even higher demands. That's almost unimaginable. I don't think it is in the best interest of our country to continue this way, mm. but what do you think? Um, well, and folks like you as well, Paul, I'm sure all your listeners know your, your, your background of service and the, and the, I didn't have a high paying job that I walked away from to, to join the service. So, um, you've made equal sacrifices as, as the rest of us in uniform. The, I would uh, strongly concur with the, the, the idea of a national service. And I'll show you my sort of emotional and rational view. The, my, my emotional side says, um, you know, I've probably like yourself, I've spent time in countries where there's a conscript model and you just do it, right? And I'm a huge personal, huge believer in that. Um, once it's the mandate in a country, it sends a different message. It says, if you want to be, uh, pre 9-11, I spent, uh, you know, a few weeks training in, in, in Sweden uh, with the Swedish Special Forces. Really, really tough duty, right? Um, and <laughs> you can imagine, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and for a weekend, we went into, into the capital city and, and went and toured the castle with these, you know, you know, all these like six foot five, good looking Swedish Special Operations guys. It was a great weekend. The castle in the, in, the, in, the, in the capital city is guarded by conscripts. Every conscript unit spends one night during the year guarding the castle, which means every citizen of the country 
has spent a night guarding the royal family. And it's kind of a big like party night for the unit, et cetera. Every person in the country shares that experience. You can't put a price tag on that. I mean, we don't, mm. we don't have anything close to that, right? So yeah, the emotional side of me says that would be really powerful for our country. Is it, is it feasible in our generation? I don't think so. Opening up the window for uh, national service far beyond where it is. And I, I don't care if you serve in the 82nd Airborne, you want to be a SEAL, you want to work in national parks, you want to work inside programs like Teach for America, City Corps, Food Corps, et cetera. Go for it. We should have massive funding dollars going towards those programs so that everybody that wants to serve, which is a far higher number, I mean, the, the application rate versus acceptance rate and things like Teach for America yeah. is dramatic. Accept all those kids. They want to serve their country. So when you, you spend a lot of time looking at structures and often antiquated structures that haven't evolved to meet current needs. The one that I talk about and explore a lot in this show is our political system. I'm an independent. I don't have a party. Many folks listening don't have a party or have a party by default. Um, I know you can't get into the specifics of candidates or politics, but when you look at, you are an expert on leadership. We are right now looking to leaders to guide us, not just through coronavirus, but through a potential recession, through an election that no matter who wins will divide us. What are your thoughts on the leadership that we see? We're down to Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, and Donald Trump, right? Um, none of which would have made it through the SEAL teams, mm -hmm. but, but are now in a position to command the SEAL teams and, and much more, just as, as a leadership um, case study. Mm. You know, the individuals and maybe even more, uh, more specifically, the structures that we're depending upon to guide us through perilous times. What do you think? Hmm. Yeah, I think on the uh, with the primaries now being sort of um, in their in their last leg, uh, my big sort of shocking takeaway was from where it started, the energy, the diversity we saw in that field to where it ended. Um, and this is not a comment about Biden or Sanders. Um you know, I'm, a, I'm just a, an observer of that system like anybody else. But I was really surprised. I thought this was a year where like, okay, there, you know, we, Hillary Clinton what, opened a, a significant door. Um, there's going to be significant change in, inside the system as a result of that four years later. And we're, I mean, we're not seeing it, right? Uh, I don't know what that says. I'm not a political analyst by, by any means, but it is, it, it is certainly surprising to me. Um, I think more, more broadly, uh, a... A thing that we haven't gotten right yet, and I, again, was hopeful that this would be the cycle where this sort of became more, of, uh, more ingrained in the discussion. And some of this is our fault as citizens, right? Uh, I think we still have collectively this uh, hero worship syndrome. And not, not to overstate that, like we think these, these, the three that are left that are obviously going to be in the, in the race uh, forthcoming is we put them on the, this person will solve these issues, right? Um, we need to move past that, right? Uh, of course, we should still have a president, no doubt. But I want to see, uh, personally as a voter, would love to see candidates that were willing to push further away from, it's about one individual, to, towards creating a, a model of teaming, right? I mean, it's core to my nature, it's core to what I've been looking at for 20 years, right? But um, the world is far too complex for one individual to solve. Great leaders throughout history have known this, and some have been overt about it, like the team of rivals, the 
amazing case study on how Lincoln built out his cabinet, it makes this case. Like, this isn't new thinking, right? But how do you pull in the diversity of viewpoint and voice um, to be able to solve uh, very, very fast-changing and multi-dimensional problems that the world's going to encounter? And it's not one person sitting behind uh, the Resolute desk making, you know, ordering people left and right. It's a person that can build teams that can have impact across a broad spectrum with, with trust, decentralized authorities, all the, all the blocking and tackling that we know works really well, that has to creep into our, our political system. But what, what this current field tells me, not just the candidates that are up there, but what we ha- who we have decided to put forth, tells me that we're not having that conversation as a population yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your, your best-selling book with General McChrystal was Team of Teams. And talking about decentralized leadership and this evolution that needs to happen really in all spaces across the globe, right? One of my, um, you know, core core beliefs is that we are operating in, you know, uh, almost a battlefield every day. You wake up, you don't know what's going to happen, whether it's coronavirus or the subway shut down or Trump saying some crazy shit, you know, every day is unpredictable. So you've got to be built for that new reality. The days of predictability and stability in my view are gone and may never come back. This is our new normal. Mm-hmm. So we've got to be built as individuals and as teams and as a country to be durable enough to, to endure and to th- not just survive, but thrive. So if there was ever maybe a case study in why team of teams matters, it's the, that we're boiled down to these three dudes mm-hmm. who, who are going to have to be more dynamic than any candidate ever before and seem to be more limited than almost any candidate ever before. So I I think this is a real moment to examine not just the leaders, but the structures Mm -hmm. in which we have empowered these leaders to to be in charge. Congress is going to face the same problem. The Supreme Court's going to face, the CDC is going to face this this same problem. So I want to ask you a very focused leadership question. When you're sizing up a leader, what do you look for? You know, whether it's a candidate, a CEO, a SEAL recruit, you know, maybe a, a, a teammate on your kid's basketball team. Mm-hmm. Like, what do, you, what do you as an expert on leadership look to that you believe define the leaders who excel and the leaders who don't? Yeah, I, I, I'd give you my, my one word answer, yeah. um, which is humility. I, I don't think there's a more important trait in a, in a leader um, than ideally genuine humi- humility. Um, but I'll even take stage humility, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and sometimes that's probably a good combo, right? You, you, you want leaders that are willing to step into that fray, step, step off the edge when, without the mandate, yeah. like we were talking about earlier, because they recognize this is a hard problem no one has a solution for. I have enough confidence in myself and my team to step into that, mm-hmm. that, that mix, um, which that's a little bit of ego um, and confidence. But the humility when you get there to say, I, I literally don't know what's going to happen next, mm. but we're going to solve this as a team. I mean, think of the best ground force leaders you saw when you were in the service, right? Uh, the, best, the best quote I heard from a peer when I was in the SEAL teams that I, that I really respected was um, trying to get permission to do some pretty crazy operation in, in somewhere in Iraq. And the, the colonel in the Marines that, that owned that local battle space said, well, what's going to happen when you get there? And he said, sir, I have absolutely no idea, but we'll solve for it. And he said, okay, approved. I mean, just having that, I, I am confident that I will, I will get on those helicopters and go into that very bad space that nobody wants to touch. 
and he, humble enough to say, I have no idea what's going to happen, but I know I have the best team out here and we'll solve for it. Can I challenge you on this, Chris? Because I wonder if, if there, there's a uniquely American attitude there, right? Encompassed in that humility and that idea that they can solve for it. Some would argue that too many of our senior leaders in the military have said they can solve for it when they can't. Mm. The insurgency, Afghanistan, you know, maybe one of the faults of the American general is they always believe they can no matter what, mm-hmm. even when they can't. And maybe that's part of why we, you know, slug through Vietnam as long as we did while we're still in Afghanistan because civilian leaders defer to military folks who say, yeah, it's just coming around the bend, right? If we had a nickel for every time we heard Afghanistan was going to turn around, we wouldn't have to worry about finding money for Corona. Right. So I, I want to ask you, you, you know, to really level on that one. Like, and, and now, and maybe expand if you're able, Afghanistan is now going through this negotiated uh, situation with the Taliban where a couple of days ago, Trump said, we have an agreement with the Taliban. A couple of days later, the Taliban resumed attacks. It looks like there, I don't know if there's anything really there or not, but there seems to be a political will to claim victory, even when, in my view, there are no victors in this situation. So what are your thoughts on the failures of, of, of some of our leaders and a lack of accountability. In Israel, they fire generals. In America, they don't fire generals. And, and they just kind of fail upward, no yeah. matter what happens. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And if you're able, your thoughts on Afghanistan and what happens next there? Um, well, starting with Afghanistan, I can't, I can't say um, that I'm surprised that we can circle back to that. But, um, you know, you build these things up. There's not going to be a binary end to what happens inside of a place like Afghanistan, right? So we shouldn't hang our hopes too much. Um, but it, but it really ties to the broader question where, um, I think one of the, uh, I mean, you, you were in the services as well, right? So, so the, the service creates a mentality of, um, here's your mission. Give me a binary solution, whether or not you can do it. Right. And that's one thing when you're, you know, it's 20 of you on helicopters going into a place. It's another thing when it's, uh, accomplishing, pretty, pretty, uh, culture changing objectives in a place like Afghanistan. Um, but we're not hardwired and we don't really allow from that service, at least in the recent generations, an honest answer of like, well, I can get you this far on that thing, but what you're, (laughs) you're talking about some pretty broad long-term issues here. Um, one of the issues, what I think in the last, at least our generation, things that we have to come to terms with is, Given the other dynamics of the world we live in now, and this ties to coronavirus as well, like the, the speed of movement, the interconnectivity, et cetera, et cetera. I and mean, we, were, we were flat and, and hyper interconnected in a way that, you know, 50 years ago, no one could have imagined was pro- possible. And so a lot of the mentality of our traditional thinking, um, win, lose, let's be here for this long, let's accomplish these objectives, is now being superseded by, I would argue, the way the world's kind of always run minus this like brief 150 year history that we're very comfortable inside of, which is um, there are forever problems, right? And you and I have, you know, 70 to 90 years on the planet if we're lucky and we're going to move things and hopefully improve them, but we're not going to solve for world peace. You know, that we'll maybe make it better and our kids will pick up the ball. And we have to consider these through very, very long-term lenses. Um, I remember one time as a young officer spending some time with the uh, the Israelis. So I was over over in in their country for a couple of days, and uh, great experience, amazing uh, allies, etc. And someone was asking me like, 
and this was pre-world falling apart sort of world. <laughs> and well, you know, what would you do if you were if you were a Middle East peace, you know, the policy between the Israelis, Palestinians, etc.? And I just said flippantly, like, well, I think we talk about solution too much, right? I would create a policy that just you're always trying to buy down tomorrow's violence, right? Let's win tomorrow. Let's keep people from blowing each other up for a week, knowing that you're this far away from it happening again. There's always going to be the next intifada. There's always going to be the next major blow up, right? Push that inevitability out as far as you can every single day. And one of the senior officers in the room said, I wouldn't vote for you on that platform. That's not very impressive. (laughs) But I do think it's true. Like, let's just recognize that the world is in a, you know, multi-generations long competition forever. And we show up and think we're the most important generation. We're going to solve for all this stuff right now. And we set ourselves up for this sort of disappointment because we then say, well, if I've got a three-year tour, I'm going to solve this problem. Here's how I'm going to do it. Doesn't yeah, I mean, work. It's, it's a dicey tightrope tight walk, right? Right now, to say we can solve for coronavirus and we have it under control. Right. There's a, the, that's the the, the tightrope that Trump is falling off of. It seems every couple of hours. This idea of projecting confidence and and the can do attitude and marshalling your forces, but at the same time having the humility to level with people to say we don't have a vaccine. We don't know how long it's going to take. Have that humility to break it down. I think it's a real. It's a fascinating exploration of leadership happening in real time around everything that you do, totally. right? And, and so I want to pull a piece of humility out of this show <laughs> that we always drill down on that we have not gotten to yet. But going back to your early days before you became the man you are today, Chris Fussell, what was your first car? My first car um, was not nearly as impressive as what's surrounding here at the uh, Classic Color Club in Manhattan. Um so this is actually pretty funny. My, my, my dad was a, I come from a medical family. So my dad was uh, a physician, sort of primary care guy um, and great role model, taught at the medical school, just kind of, you know, all American. And this, I was born in 72. So like in eighties, my dad got his first real like doctor job post-residency and all that stuff and bought a, uh, you know, I think like 1981, right? This big four-door, brown Cadillac cruiser, like classic lawyer, doctor car for 1981. <laughs> and, um, you know, we lived in like just total middle-class suburb in Virginia. And he rode that until it was, it was dying. And then it just sat in the garage and it was our car to inherit. So if you do the math, I was probably, I don't know, 10 years old, eight years old, somewhere in that range when he bought it. So when I turned 18, I finally inherit because it had been passed down through my brothers. And at that point it was just a total junker way out of date. Um, but went through being uncool, uncool, and then cool again. Yeah. And by the time I'd inherited it, we, we were all wrestlers. And, and one of my brothers had, had ripped the, uh, you know, like wrestling, uh, the trophy you would get, like the little wrestler on top, the little gold thing. Yeah. Like, looks ridiculous. Had ripped it off some trophy and super glued it to the, taking the Cadillac thing off the front and super glued this wrestler on the front. Nice. Yes. Yeah, so it was nice. like this easily identifiable, all the police around my hometown do like. <laughs> what color was this Cadillac? It was like dirty brown. It was the, it was the ugliest like classic car. You and how imagine. many wrestlers could you fit in that Cadillac? Oh, you could take like half the team to practice. <laughs> yeah. And it got like, you know, four miles to a gallon. It was, it was great. I think I'm the brother that finally ran it into the ground and just had to be shot after, after I was done. I love it. I love it. I love it. So I want to come back to another question we ask of everyone. You are, it's interesting that your dad's a doctor, right? Because of the way you deconstruct problems. And, and that's really one of the things that most impresses me about you 
and and a very small number of leaders who America has yet to really get to know because I think you are the problem solver of our future, right? You and a very, very select few. I hope that one day you are uh, a nominee for Secretary of Defense or, I, and we've talked about this, I hope you run for office. You, I imagine you're going to tell me you won't. Is that right? <laughs> Not anytime soon, Not, my friend. <laughs> but you're the kind of guy we need in, in, in public service because you know how to break down problems with a surgical precision and a humility that is so sorely lacking in our politics and our national leadership. But you're also a guy who knows how to appreciate life. You've been through shit that other people can't imagine. So, you know, in, in, in that exploration and that journey that you've gone through, Chris Fussell, what makes you happy? Um, I, it, it sounds canned, but it's my, uh, my wife and two kids, right? I mean, that, at its core, I think that's just in, if you're a decently good person, that's in your, in your DNA. I know you're the same way, right? So we live in D.C. We've got this pretty hectic lifestyle, as everyone in that city does or here in New York, um, but combined my family, we have, a, we have a house in a small town in West Virginia called Fayetteville, West Virginia. Bought the house there years ago. It's some of the best rock climbing and, and river sports on the East Coast. Uh, that's, our, that's our retrieve. We have, we have good, amazing friends up there that are locals that you show up and they could care less about what's going on in D.C. or your consulting practice. They want to they wanna throw on climbing gear, go out, have a fun day, drink a beer afterwards on the porch. That's, that's for my wife and I. That's our happy place. I love it. You've been through some big transitions and a lot of folks listening are going through transitions. Could be a transition of career. Could be a transition of family. You know, this is a time of transition. Um, you know, people always have this idea of a veteran, you know, who's challenged to transition and they think of a private, they don't think about a general like Stan McChrystal. Um, for anybody going through transition, what do you have any insights now having gone through the other side of this and now you have a very successful private um sector business uh you've you know gone from being not just a navy seal who wrote a book because just about every navy seal wrote a book <laughs> writes, writes a book you wrote you wrote you wrote a smart book yeah. right not just a, a memoir but you wrote a leadership and a thought leadership book you're a philosophy major but you know you're a contemplative guy you 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 think about the this journey you're on um, for someone who's going through a tough transition right now, what counsel or advice do you have for them? Um, yeah, probably like yourself, uh, it, it, it wanes now as I've been further out of the service, but every month or so probably have a, have a chat with somebody that's getting out. And so I've got sort of a standard 45 minute spiel. I'll, I'll try to boil it down. Hard lessons that I've, I've learned along the way, but to boil it down, um, I think the key things for, for, for folks to remember um, regardless of what branch, et cetera, that you're getting out of the, of the service. And, and frankly, in many ways, how long, you know, four years versus 20 years. Or even beyond the service. Be, right? Beyond the like, service, yeah, yeah. but tr transitions in general. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I talk to a lot of industry leaders yeah. now in, in my current world that are transitioning from one position to another, et cetera, or retiring from CEO. Um, the, I think the number one thing is remembering that, uh, or recognizing that it's going to be harder than you would anticipate. Um, that's easy to say, but I say that to, to folks that are, that are transitioning out of a sort of pay it forward appreciation. Four months from now, when you think it can't, I must be doing something wrong. This is way harder than I thought it would be. You're probably not even there yet, right? And then digging into that a little bit, and I went through this uh, myself, was a recognition that, you know, coming from like, for example, the, the SEAL teams or army units that have been in combat, et cetera, you can't 
put into words the emotional strain and intensity that 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 puts into your psyche, right? Um, there was a time when I was a happy, lucky go, you know, fun loving kid. And then fast forward 10 years and you're in the middle of chaos. Right. And so you, it's in all of our psychology, you build up defensive layers, right? You become part of the tribe. You talk differently. You walk differently because you're trying to go back to your core core DNA, which is, you know, here's the birds of a feather mentality. These are the people that will will save my life and protect my family. And I will become as much like them to fit in as possible. And they're doing the same thing, right? So we all map toward each other. And that's not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's a, it's a very important survival mechanism, especially inside of specialized units. Uh, when you get out, that's gone. Right? Mm. That immediately goes away, right? So on you leave on Monday, on Friday, like nobody in the unit wants to see you show up. Like, so you've out, I, I tell guys all the time, like you have this emotional and psychological body armor you're going to drop your kit, but you still, you're still wearing this body armor. And it's going to take you months or sometimes years to take it off. And because every time you take it off, you, you discover a new layer of yourself that existed 10 years ago. And you have to reconcile with that. Um, and I've also found that, and you, you, you certainly lived this, we con- constrain our, in high pressure situations, whether it's industry or military, we constrain our emotional bandwidth down to this thousand yard stare that I'm certainly you had on your face and you saw on your, on your soldiers. And I don't think that's a one way street. You aren't constraining the, the downside. You're constraining the upside as well. Right. Which is why people would, you know, they can, they can lose a friend and go out on patrol the next day, but they also come home and they don't smile when they see their wife. Right. So you live in this really constrained space. And as you start to unpack, it opens back up, which is one of the reasons I think guys don't want to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause you deal with, all that emotion you left behind 10 years ago. Um, and that's, it took me probably two years. And I did not have like the, in, anywhere near the intense battle fear experience that, that folk operators in my community had. Certainly the 19 year old underserviced private in the 82nd had patrolling the streets of Baghdad. Um, and even for, for me, it was about a two year cycle. Mm. Thank you for sharing that, man. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of this. I, for folks that don't know you, you do teach. <laughs> And you write books. And part of what I've loved about this show is a chance to introduce a broader audience to leaders that I believe are important, inspiring, and or iconic. And uh, for, for all the folks who are looking for hope and a exceptionally high level of competence, and I want to say that in the best possible way, because competence can be a bit dismissive. But at a time when we're concerned about the leadership of this country and whether or not they can handle the shit that's flying at us, to be able to hear from you, Chris, and to be able to see your leadership example and the fact that you're teaching it. You could have gone to West Virginia and hung out in the mountains and just you know, said, forget it, I'm going to build mailboxes and go fishing. <laughs> but um, you continue to give back to this country and this community in such a powerful and important way. And I know you're just getting started. So I'm really grateful that you've spent this time with us, that you braved the Acela and the crowds after fighting Al-Qaeda and ISIS. I got a feeling that Corona is not really going <laughs> to stop you from going to another city. But I'm really grateful for your friendship, your leadership, your candor today. And as is tradition in the show, we have the giving of the gifts. So I am going to give you, I can hold your mic if you'd like. Um, you got some, first of all, some American-made Oh, I love this. I love the brand you've come up with. Just straight angry. Yeah. Well, you, you know, know I, when I look at this, my first uh, SEAL platoon, like you all come up with your like little logos and yeah. stuff. Our logo was anger. 
Really? Not angry, but anger. We wow. had these ball caps. <laughs> wow. Our commanding officer didn't like it. There's some like, what, what, what probably has about? a clothing line who's beating me to it. Um, <laughs> but thank you for that. And then we've got, uh, you're a fan Ooh. of bourbon. And this, we always pick an American-made bourbon or, or whiskey. Uh, and this is Peerless. The team at Peerless will appreciate this. Because I really think you are without peer. Thank you. And uh, I think you, you, the sharing of your story that you are still so humble in doing is powerful. With pe- Hold on. Don't get to that yet, man. <laughs> don't get to that yet. Still talking about the whiskey. Um, but you are without peer. And I think it's important for people to understand this is a country where we celebrate NBA point guards. And, you know, so many other folks, the, 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 the rigor and the discipline and the demands that have been put on you to get to where you were, what you had to endure to get to where you were is without peer and is exceptionally rare, especially in this culture. So I want folks to understand that at a time we didn't get into it, but Ellie, you know, Eddie Gallagher's on 60 minutes, the, the, the image of the seals has taken a hit, Mm. um, and in some ways fairly, Mm -hmm. right. You are a guy who I think represents the best of what the SEALs are about, the best of what this country is about. And you are without peer. And you're not going to agree with me on that. But uh, but, <laughs> I I want appreciate you know, it. but I want you to know you appreciate it. And then lastly, this one might actually break the Iceman down. So we got <laughs> three colors of peeps, yellow, blue, and pink. Chris Fussell, which one would you choose and why? Oh, this is great. Well, first, a backstory on Peeps. My brother-in-law, who is uh, one of my personal role models, uh, just think the world, I've learned a lot from over the years. Uh, ear, nose, throat surgeon, just brilliant guy. His favorite food in the world is Peeps. Really? The only person I know that actually eats these. Maybe you're the second. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we're expanding it. One, they, one person. They will time. survive any uh, natural disaster. They will. Um, they will. They're corona-proof. Let's see. What would I? What, which, which color, color? would I pick? I will pick um, pink peeps uh, because the only person in my family I think that would uh, actually uh, partake in these would be my 11 year old daughter. This matches the color of her uh, the drapes in her room, so that speaks you, to me. There you go, man. There you go. Well, you've spoken to us powerfully. It's been a masterclass in leadership and an examination of all that our country is going through, but. Chris Fussell, you're an outstanding American. You're a patriot. You're you're a great leader, and uh, you've been operating without any notoriety for a long period of time. And I'm very very excited to be able to share a bit of time with you, share your voice with the country, and to watch what you do next. If folks are listening, they need to read your books, they need to watch your speeches, and they need to keep an eye on you because you are uh, a real source of hope and inspiration in what is some definitely trying times. Well, Paul, I appreciate it. And let me take a second to return the thanks because uh, as some of your, your listeners uh, probably uh, may underappreciate, you've been a pioneer in our in our generation of military leaders from day one. Uh, that's what connected us originally. The work you've continued to, not just inside of IAVA, which is an amazing and, and needed organization. I don't know another person that could have done that like you did. And what you accomplished there has real and deep meaning for an entire generation of vets. Uh, so if you've already, you've already stamped your tombstone, man. So it's, it's, it's amazing. And so keep up the great work. Thanks, man. Don't go burying me just yet. <laughs> we got a lot of work to do. Ladies and gentlemen, the great and powerful Chris Fussell live from the classic car club in Manhattan. Watch him everywhere. And he may be riding in the Acela near you. Thanks brother. Thanks brother. Appreciate it. We are actually shaking hands and we're going to go disinfect after this. <laughs>
Everyone's on edge right now. And lots of folks are stressed out. And there's plenty of reason to be angry. But if Chris Fussell taught you anything, it's that calm is contagious. And especially when the storm is raging, there's a way to make an impact. It's time to turn that anger, frustration, inspiration, agony into positive impact. It's time to be a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Every show, I offer a way of converting your righteous, understandable anger into positive action. A positive action that shows that angry Americans can also be impactful Americans. An action that'll channel your energy, make you feel good, and will make a difference. And like this show, our actions are always packed with the four eyes: Integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. I can't stand the rain against my window. So as the rain of stress comes down all across this country, I got three quick actions that you can take that are timely in this time where folks are stressed about all the rain coming down. Number one, go to the CDC website. Go to cdc.gov. It's a place for solid information that you can count on and you can share. Share that instead of whatever crap you're seeing on Facebook or Twitter. Number two, a lot of us have been trying to figure out how to talk to kids about the coronavirus. Well, I found a resource that I think is really great. It's the UNICEF website. Go to unicef.org, and there's a section about how to talk to your children about the coronavirus, and it's got eight really easy steps. It's easy to feel overwhelmed by everything you're hearing about the coronavirus, and it's also understandable that your kids might be feeling anxious, too. Kids can find it tough to understand what they're seeing online or TV or hearing from other people, and they can be particularly vulnerable to anxiety, stress, and even sadness. But having an open, supportive conversation with your kids or the kids around you can help them understand and make positive contributions to others. You can help them be helpers. But go to UNICEF.org to see the eight steps. Number one, ask open questions and listen. Number two, be honest and explain the truth in a child-friendly way. Number three, show them how to protect themselves and their friends. Number four, offer reassurance. Number five, check if they're experiencing or spreading stigma. Number six, my favorite, look for the helpers. It's important for children to know that people are helping each other with acts of kindness and generosity. You can share stories of health workers, scientists, and young people who are working to help stop the outbreak and keep our community safe. It's a big comfort for kids to know that compassionate people are taking action. Number seven, take care of yourself. You'll be able to help your kids if you're coping too. And number eight, close your conversations with care. Remind your kids that they can have difficult conversations with you at any time. And remind them that you care, you're listening, and you're available whenever they're feeling worried. Those are the eight steps that UNICEF recommends, and you can go to unicef.org. I got one more recommendation for you. Number three, watch Mr. Rogers. If you're going to be stuck in the house or somewhere else with your family for the next couple of days or next couple of weeks or next couple of months, even if you don't have kids or no kids in your life, Go back and watch a couple episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It'll remind you how to be a good citizen. It'll remind you how to be reflective. And it's pretty calming. It's good stuff to share and it's good stuff to reflect on, especially now. When we talk about being a helper, remember that Mr. Rogers is the guy who taught us how to be helpers. And being nice, being kind, and being neighborly is more important now than maybe ever before. These are three simple things that can help us stay united, help us stay informed, and help us to help each other. Be a helper. 
And if you've got a story to tell or a resource to share, find us on social media and use the hashtag AngryAmericans and let me know. Don't just be angry, be active. Against my window, bringing back sweet memories. All right, putting anything together in times like this can be tricky, but a lot of folks chipped in to help make this episode happen, and I want to make sure to thank them. First off, Chris Fussell, amazing leader, patriot, friend, badass. He doesn't do too many interviews, and I'm honored that he joined us, and I'm honored to call him a friend. Massive thanks also to Holly, his equally amazing and inspiring wife, and to his kids. Warriors like Chris volunteer for service, but their families get drafted. And Holly and so many other brave, tough, inspiring military spouses like her, they're the rocks that our special operations community is built on. So thank you to all of them. Thanks again to my friends at the Classic Car Club Manhattan, Phil Cavanaugh, Mike Princinello, Zach Mosley, Jeanette Klein, Sherry Gabb, Rena Hoxa and Dom in the Sim Room and the whole gang over at the Classic Car Club. Thanks for always opening up your home to us and for rolling out the red carpet to this show and to all our guests. Big thanks to the entire dynamic Righteous Media team. This podcast is brought to you by Righteous Media, and that means it's brought to you by an awesome group of people. And that means Mighty Mercy Rich, our navigator and the master chief that's running our engine room every day of Righteous Media. Big thanks to Mighty Mercy Rich. Big thanks to creative Chris Rosenthal, who's always crushing our content. If you're stuck at home and you can't go out, check out all the amazing video content that Chris helps us put together. Check out our social media. Check us out on Facebook. Facebook, check us out on Instagram, and check out our YouTube page. You can go back and check all the archives and lots of very, very cool and inspiring videos that creative Chris Rosenthal puts together. Speaking of awesome, Radical Roy Velchek shot all our video for this episode with Chris that you can check out right now at angryamericans.us. You can see my conversation with Chris. You can also see past conversations with Stephanie Rule, Rachel Maddow, Chris Cuomo, Megan McCain, everybody. And we've got some new behind-the-scenes features, including me with an elephant costume running around the car club. Check it out. Big thanks to outstanding Omar Legalege, who continues to be a critical member of our team. He's helping make everything happen and always keeping us inspired and grounded. Thank you to Omar. Big thanks to Bill Schultz, the master, who put together his artistry, as always, on this episode to make it sound so good. I don't know how you do it, man, but my thanks to you. Big thanks to Oscar Mike, our awesome merch partners. Check out all their new designs, like the ones I gave Chris and I give all our guests at angryamericans.us now. Order now and you'll get it in time for Easter or for Mother's Day for all you mothers and for Father's Day and more. But go to check out Oscar Mike stuff and the Angry Americans line at angryamericans.us. We often celebrate the helpers on this show, so I want to thank some folks in particular. I want to send a shout-out and a big thank you to the staff at the World Trade Center Health Program Clinical Center of Excellence at Mount Sinai Hospital. This week, I got my annual 9-11 checkup. I'm a 9-11 first responder, and I can get a checkup there every single year to make sure I'm okay. But it's only possible thanks to this staff, the staff that checks us out and keeps us healthy, even in times like this when everybody's stressed out about corona. And it's only possible thanks to the advocacy of so many people that made the Zadroga bill and the Zadroga extension for 9-11 first responders possible. 
Now, the upside of coronavirus is that the lines were shorter than any other time since I've been going there since 9-11. But if you served at Ground Zero or you were in that area, no matter what state you're from, go and get checked. It's free, and that health care is there for you thanks to the advocacy of so many folks who listen to the show and to our broader network. But thanks to our advocacy together, it's free, and that smartly includes mental health care. Don't put it off. If you won't do it for yourself, do it for your loved ones or do it from the data that they will need from us to help others. So many of us are sick and too many of us are already gone. But just like on 9-11, we're in this together and we got to take care of each other. And one way to do that is to get checked. Beyond that, stay involved and enjoy every day because you never know when it might be your last. Which reminds me to send a shout out to my friend Rob Sarah, who is a 9-11 first responder, who encourages other folks to get checked out. He's been a spirit animal of this entire program. If you haven't heard him, he's an amazing FDNY hero firefighter whose first day on the job was 9-11. He's the anchor of episodes 2 and 11. Just want to thank him and so many others who advocated for the extension of that bill so that now I and, and so many others can get health care if we need it. That's what we can do when we're united, folks. Rob Sarah sets the path. Rob's a true leader, and once we're able to all gather together in spaces again, I look forward to celebrating the one-year anniversary of this show and hopefully getting together all our guests, getting Rob Sarah in the same room with Ron Perlman, Willie Geist, Agent Pooh, and so many others. Look forward to doing that soon when we're able to get back together. Until then, it's time to thank a listener. So every week, I want to thank a few angry Americans just for listening. And I always want to hear from you. And if you don't know, now you know we have a hotline. The number is 833-33-ANGRY. That's 833-33-ANGRY. Give us a call, and I'll make you famous. I'll make you famous. Like this guy, Mike. Mike was good enough to drop us a line. Yeah, Paul, uh, what, what is there not to get angry about what's going on there today? Listen, I've been a big fan of yours and what you've been able to do. Uh, I... Uh, tried to prevent the war you served in. Boy, you had to leave a little more time on this uh, service you got set up here. Uh, I thought you were going to run for Congress. I think you live up around West Point there. Um, and um, there's just so many issues out there. The VA is worse than ever. I don't have to tell you that. Getting murdered in Fayetteville, Arkansas, Clarksburg, West Virginia, getting raped in Beckley, West Virginia, getting robbed in Coatesville Medical Center in Pennsylvania. Uh, what, $12,000, 85-year-old guy in a wheelchair, nurse assistant, got his PIN number. And again, you'd really been very good uh, in Congress, but maybe it was too restrictive. I hear you, Mike. Thanks for the call. I am not interested in running for Congress, but I am definitely interested in your thoughts. Congress is way too restrictive. You're right. I'm going to stick to this job for now. I also won't have to go to Capitol Hill and get sneezed on by Senator Ted Cruz or any of the other knuckleheads in Congress that dismiss coronavirus. But I'm not dismissing you, Mike. Thank you for sounding off about the VA. I hear you, and thank you for supporting me and the whole team at IAVA. Big shout out to all those folks. And folks, be like Mike. Leave me a voicemail. Let me know what's got you angry, and maybe we will use it in a future show. Be like Mike. The number is 833-33-ANGRY. That's 833-33-ANGRY. Be like Mike. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. I want to send a thanks out to Marsha Fleming, who is from Indiana. She tweets at Marsha J. Fleming. She is a wife to Lisa. She is a road warrior, progressive, barnstormer, W-Y-S-I-W-Y-G, which I had to Google, which means what you see is what you get. 
living by the rules of the road. All opinions are her own. But she sent some love out to us, and I want to send some love back. Mohammed Shatara had been working for an organizer for Mayor Pete, and he tweeted, I'm at the beginning of a post-campaign film, TV, book, and podcast binge. He asked, does anyone have any recommendations of anything good from the last nine months? And Marsha tweeted back, Paul Rykoff's Angry Americans pod from the beginning. Not just the Pete Buttigieg episode, hashtag Super Friends Network. And she tweeted at me, love the pod, Paul Rykoff. Thank you, Marsha. I love you back and appreciate you recognizing that this is a Super Friends Network. You are a part of it. And I hope to bring you more Super Friends every single episode in this show. Chris Fussell is just one example of the Super Friends I've been blessed to know. And I hope to bring more of them to you guys in the days and weeks to come. But thank you, Marsha. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Thanks also to Lorraine Bell, who comes to us all the way from Cowdenbeath, Scotland. Yes, we are reaching far and wide with this podcast all the way to Scotland. I want to thank Lorraine Bell for checking us out. She is a seeker of the truth and all-around good person. I love people who save animals. She said she's loving this interview, loves Stephanie, and I love the rose and thorn dinner rule. Uh, if you missed it, Stephanie Rule talked about how she sits with her family twice a week and they have dinner together and they talk about the roses and thorns of their day. It was a really cool episode. Continues to get awesome, awesome feedback. If you haven't heard it, go back and check out episode 49 with Stephanie Rule from NBC. There's also video, angryamericans.us for all of it. But thank you, Lorraine. Thank you to Scotland, everybody over there. So many people have been loving that episode with Stephanie Rule. If you haven't heard it, go back and check it out. But thank you to my friend Lorraine, and thank you to all of you. Keep the feedback coming on social media, on the phones, and everywhere else. Please keep the feedback coming and use the hashtag Angry Americans and sound off. Especially if you're home and staring at a screen for the next couple of weeks, check out our past episodes and show us some love. But I'm grateful to all of you. And I'm also thankful, as always, to my amazing family, my wife and two boys, we celebrated River's first birthday last week. Well, we've been really celebrating it all month, but it was pretty epic. It was tough planning anything uh, during coronavirus, especially a one-year-old's birthday, but everyone chipped in, and we had a rock and roll-themed party for our little rock star who loves his music. Mom dressed like a rock star, which was kind of inspired by Jem and the holograms, which was awesome. My four-year-old rider got to go with a mohawk, and then he decided he didn't want the mohawk, and he just wanted to eat lots of cake and play with his cousin. I did my first TikTok ever, uh, and I did it in an elephant costume because I now have a tradition of wearing a wacky costume to every one of my kids' birthday. My son had an awesome birthday, and my big guy's also learning how to play baseball, which is amazing, and he's also learning about corona and doing his part. I read him the stuff from the UNICEF website. I played him the Wiggles video. And now he keeps sticking his head out the window of our house to yell at everyone outside to wash their hands. But I'm thankful to him for being a helper. And I'm thankful to you guys and my family so much. I love you. Just like I'm thankful to you, my dear listener, for tuning in. Please keep pushing through this storm. Please keep bringing the calm. Keep bringing the positive attitude to me and most of all to each other. And please continue to tell your friends to check this podcast out. If you're on an Apple device, leave the show a quick review. Subscribe now, and we'll have it hot and fresh waiting for you every Thursday. 
We got some great stuff coming up throughout the spring and into the summer. No matter what happens in America, this will continue to be a source of integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. And I'm thankful that you give me time every single week on this pod. And we're going to keep building. More inspiring, important, and iconic guests are coming. Some really good ones. I can't share it yet. You often ask me why I can't share them because I got to nail it down. But stay tuned. They are coming. And please keep the feedback coming on social media. I see you. I hear you. I'm with you. Go to angryamericans.us. Sign up for our newsletter. We will have more live events coming when live events are allowed in America again. But until then, we will adapt, improvise, and overcome. So stay tuned. Subscribe for free and share. And we will keep this movement growing week by week by week. And remember, it's okay to be angry, especially when the entire country is stressed out. But no, you're not alone. We're all a little angry, and that's because we're paying attention, especially in times like these. Together, we can weather the storms, we can stand the rain, and we can turn that vigilant anger into positive impact. Keep calm, folks, and keep your head up. Keep I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay vigilant, America, and go wash your hands. Keep your head up.